Welcome to the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, it's me, your unique boy from Denver, Colorado. I'm in a mountain right now. The man in the mountain. Also with us here in Chicago, the godfather himself, Dave Harbarger. Back again. Planning on rocking you 10 times harder than any other DJ can. I'm so glad to see you, Dave. Hey, it's nice to see everybody. It's been a, it was a real week. It was a real couple of weeks, so I'm, I'm glad to be back. Last but not least, it's the new warden in town, Zach Colhan. That's right. I'm here to clean up this podcast and whip it in shape. <laughs> Zach, I'm also I'm also mm-hmm. kind of glad to see you. I mean, I saw you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be back, everybody. <laughs> kind of glad. I saw you more recently kind than Dave. So, on this week's podcast, we'll go over the results of SCG Philly, GP Tampa, and GP Bilbao. Then, in the dive down, Dave and I will talk to SCG All Star Ross Merriam. And finally, in the wind down, we'll take a listener question. But first, we got a little housekeeping. We want to begin by saying thanks to a couple of our newest reviewers who shared some very kind words about our podcast on iTunes. Big thanks to Clay P, Moon Berjou, and So that's one of those usernames that sounds like we're padding our own podcast, but we did not leave that review. Someone left that review for us. I could never have come up with a screen name that creative. Uh, I'm unsure its origins, but it is extremely impressive. Yeah, it wasn't even spam. They, they, they talked about modern. So, it, yeah. It wasn't even like it's a very, not, very good know, podcast five star. Whatever it is, it's not of this realm. I think we can agree on that. It's a time-shifted card. So before we get into the, uh, any of the rest of the tournament results or anything like that, I think that we wanted to take a minute to kind of talk about um, some stuff that's going on in the community as far as discussion on card strength and bannings and stuff like that goes this week and um you know things are getting a little bit more kind of high key and uh we just wanted to take a minute to talk about you know ways to engage with each other in positive positive ways online instead of kind of resorting to uh negatives and so zach has some thoughts on that so uh in light of re- recent tournament results which we will get to uh, very shortly there have been a lot of calls for bans online and I just kind of want to touch on the language people are using and the culture around this. So if you've been playing modern for longer than, you know, six, seven months, you've seen this before. You've seen a duck do very well and people get upset about it. People call for bans. People have a bunch of discussions online. And I am definitely among that people. I remember getting beat by humans when it came out and instantly thinking this deck is horrible. It's banned. I don't like it. I've <laughs> changed since then. But I, I understand the sort of a powerful deck emerges and people want things to happen to it or the power level to shift. Yeah, I was there with you, Zach. You know, when the I remember in our chats just, uh, you know, a year ago when humans was beating up on me super badly, I was like, man, this seems almost too good. Like the percentage is almost too high. I think something might, might maybe should nerf this deck. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the humans deck, I think, was good for modern. I think it's good currently. What I want to talk about is the sort of the nature of the discussion that I've seen online lately and on Twitter and Reddit especially. Yeah. And I think sort of the language has been, for me, a little untenable, especially when it comes to the name calling, saying people are crying, being crybabies or things like that, I feel is really dismissive. And it doesn't really get to the core of the issue or promote really good discussion in any way. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's you're essentially calling people weak for having an opinion different than you, or not you know manning up and play the right decks that are going to beat on the you know the top decks of the meta. So I feel like when people are making comments like this or going down this route, it's it really becomes really hard for people to respond in an honest and thoughtful way. Like if, if I have an opinion and you call me a crybaby for it, anything I say from there is either defending myself, which is bad or agreeing with you. And neither way is good. And I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to have discussions and disagree. I, as we'll get into later, I share a different opinion with Stan on a card that we're going to talk about, but I'm not going to call him a name ideally about it. It's so I, I just think that now is a good time to be civil and be kind to each other. And, these sort of ad hominem attacks and calling people names isn't a good way to get your point across or have someone really give you the time of day. Yeah. Also, I think you'll find that the people whose opinion gets respected in the professional community or the article community, the content creators are people who are thoughtful about things and they're, they're talking to you from a point of logic and they're talking to you from a, from a point of reason rather than just like you said being ad hominem so i'm I'm glad you thought of this zach i unfortunately never would have i think that it's good to look at the way people are are talking to each other and the way the community discourse is happening so i'm um, good on you for bringing it up yeah and i think you know people should keep in mind what we try to do here as part of that too because we're definitely about being a place where people can ask questions people can ask questions without fear of having someone else say that's a dumb question or, or things like that. And I feel like this comes from a similar place where like, let's try to strive to have open, honest discussions about things that like Shane said are based on reason, based on real kind of thoughts about where the format could go or things like that. It's especially easy to do, uh, do these kind of like lazy habits or unhealthy habits on the internet because it feels like they're not real people. Yeah. Well, we're, we're the people on the other end of those things you know and you you know you come in and you check in and you listen to us we're the same as the, the other people that you talk to on reddit or twitter or things like that so just uh you know hang in there and uh, try to keep it positive and keep it open and keep it interesting uh thank you very much for supporting me in this guys i i think that we can be a a, a force for positive and good and change so this past weekend was massive for Competitive Modern because we had three huge tournaments all over the world with people coming together to play Modern specifically. And the results were thought-provoking, to say the least. And this week on The Breakdown, we're going over SCG Philly, GP Bilbao, GP Tampa, because these were all Modern main events. Yeah, so as soon as we had the Day 2 metagame data available across all three events we wanted to put together a combined day two metagame share so we could see what the percentages evened out to across all the events and so we have about 562 total players uh, and their decks in this data so across those three events we saw is it phoenix at 21.3 percent humans at seven <laughs> yeah that's okay yeah it's, it's funny it's funny not it's funny to like just read that and be like yeah that's fine <laughs> if if you guys could see me on video right now, you would see that I did a spit take <laughs> at twenty one percent. Can I can can I just point out really quick what twenty one percent of five hundred and sixty two is? Yeah, please do. It's over a hundred decks. Yeah, it's over a hundred people <laughs> out of five hundred and sixty two people that day two these three events were playing. Is it Phoenix? Yeah. So do you think we're going to run out of a sustainable source of scalding turn soon? Because we know it's a finite I resource. Dude, I think they're going to be $130 cards soon if we're not... Get to the mines. It keeps going this way. we got to mine some more <laughs> yeah. scalding tarns. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We need to find 
other planets or asteroids that have scalding tarns so we can mine those. Do you think we could use warm tarns instead of scalding ones? <laughs> all right. So, so, uh, all right, so I, sorry, I didn't mean to derail you, but no, that, was, please. that seemed That's worth my kind of underlining. Yeah, so yeah, 21% is it Phoenix, uh, 7.6% humans, 6.5% Tron, 6.2% Burn, 6.2% Dredge, 4.6% Green Black Rock. Yes, you heard me correct. There is a mid-range fair deck sitting at number five across all three events. Uh, just below that, we have Grixis Death Shadow at the same percentage, 4.6. Blue-white control, 4.2, 4.3%. Affinity, not hardened scales affinity, just affinity, 3.9%. Were Prison, people are finally seeming to respect us a bit more, 3.4%. Red-green Valakit um, also incorporates some scape shift type decks there, 3.2%. 3% Spirits, 2.7% uh, Hardened Scales, 2% Ad Nauseam. And then I'll read, I'll read the next three. 1.6% Mono Red Phoenix, 1.4% Amulet Titan. And then we have a bunch of 1%s. Uh, Blue Moon, somehow. Hollow One, Jeskai Control, Jund, and Storm. And then we have a bunch of odds and ends below that. Well, that's kind of your long list of the day two metagame across the latest three events. So that's something. So Burn Burn makes a little comeback here. We've we've been talking about Burn not showing up at GPLA and at some other events whose names are escaping me. But Burn here SCG regionals. Yeah, regionals. Burn was that's yeah, right. Burn was basically nowhere. It was basically nowhere at GPLA, and here it makes a little bit of a comeback. So what do you guys think of this? Does this look like a format that you want to play? No, it doesn't seem like a format I want to play. Not at all, really. Well, why? There's uh, like yeah, 20 yeah. different decks here or more. Well, I mean, because the majority is in Phoenix. Yeah. And I, I, I just particularly don't enjoy playing against that deck. I think we've talked about that a little bit. I, I, I don't find it particularly enthralling or engaging. I know that Stan plays it or a version of it, so that's not to denigrate him or anything. Oh, sorry. Dave is pointing to himself right now, ladies and gentlemen. I, I also play that deck. I mean, Dave, I think what's... I was the first of us to play that deck. <laughs> so are, are, are we looking at, are we, are we saying that we think that a day, making day two is kind of a good cutoff for saying this is a playable competitive deck, or do we want to go to a harder cut in our top 32 data? Well, I think if you look at what the goal for people who listen to the show is, it's probably making day two. Oh, yeah, I would love it. Right. Like, I mean, making day two of a Grand Prix or a, an Open, I think, is the type of goal that a lot of people that our listeners would have. Um, I know that that doesn't seem like a lot, but I, I know plenty of people who've been playing in big tournaments for years and years and don't have a single day two at one of these events. And so <clears throat> I think that that could be a good cutoff as far as what our audience is. Yeah. And if that's your goal... I think what this says is you might play a lot of Is It Phoenix, but there's still a lot of other decks that are making their way through the through the bracket to be able to get you the second day of competition. And then once that happens, who knows where it's going to go from there? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the thing you have to keep in mind is that if you day two with two losses, you're not you're not really in contention for top thirty two or top eight or anything like that. Anyway, it really just becomes about how far can you push it, and maybe you get a chance to money or something like that. But that's still a full weekend of magic, high-level competitive magic that you got to feel like you were a part of. And there's a huge list of decks here that you you can do that with. Now, there are like the normal pillars of the format here, right? You got your Aether Vile decks. You got your um, your Affinity-style decks, your Opal decks. You got your Graveyard decks. You got your decks. decks. You got your Faithless Looting decks. 
you do have a mid-range deck in in rock and then also you know depending on how you feel about grace's death shadow this week maybe that falls in that in that kind of mid-range bucket as well kind of but um so i think there's a lot of options if that's your goal for sure but i mean i don't know what do you guys think about that as far as like a yardstick for our listeners yeah i mean i think it's absolutely a good way to put it stan had mentioned that it's a diverse format it certainly is there's so many decks represented here I, I think the issue or the umbrage I'm taking is not with the diversity of the format, but the incredibly concentrated win rate of a certain deck in particular. So I think you can play to a degree any competitive deck you want to, but you just have to, I don't know, dodge Phoenix. It just, it's brutal. What is this like Voldemort? Like you're saying a certain deck, like you can't even name it anymore. He who must not be named. At the end, it, it, it's, yeah, it's a curse word escape my lips. <laughs> the bird that won't be named yeah. the bird that shan't be named yeah. no, i i think what we what we could do now episode title <laughs> what we could do is look the at the, the, the top 32 combined data and then we can kind of see like between day two and between the top 32 what kind of fell off and what gained a lot more metagame share along the way i think we can get a better idea of kind of overt power level that way at least in this you know small microcosm of meta Sure. The micro, yeah. the microcosm of meta. So, so I was going to do this today, but Good Grief Games saved me the time. So shout out to Good Grief Games for posting this article up where they took the top 32 data and they combined it much in the same way we did for the day two metagame. And so here we see some stuff start to shake out and get sifted through the, the meat grinder. I'm just going to combine various kitchen implements but let's talk about the differences here. So yes. what people usually would, would be looking for here is, okay, when you get to the winner's bracket, basically in day two, what's performing at a higher level where it's converting more decks than were in the, the day two share yeah. originally? Yeah. So, so what's higher? You already said that Arclight Phoenix was higher yeah, so yeah, is it, by it, a few percentage. Yeah. Is it Phoenix went from 214 to 25%. Dredge, 62 to 13.5%. So yes, that's something. Double the double up its, double its representation, yeah. And prison also uh, nearly doubled, three point four to six point three percent. And we saw some slight rises in Grixis Death Shadow and Titan and Scapeshift decks. And you know, consistent was like Humans Tron, Blue White Control, Affinity Burn. When we look at the numbers, this conversion rate, and you compare, is it which only gained about three and a half four percent, and Dredge which nearly doubled? Does that say something about those particular decks' win rate? Dredge is underplayed. It's extremely good That's what it says. at beating opponents. And to me, it does. Dredge, well, Dredge is extremely good. Well, I mean, I think that, that this indicates a little bit, too, that the article that uh, to Toby Hanky Toby on Channel Fireball published last week where he had calculated the actual win rates of a lot of the different decks in modern through pretty large sample sizes and dredge was at the actually at the top of that list for just raw win percentage yeah. and it was close to 60 percent and so i think that plus this data showing the uptick in representation between a day two field and a top 32 field kind of does say what shane said which is dredge is good Dredge might be very good and potentially might even be underplayed, even though it can get hated out by a by a room that um where people are kind of see it coming. Um I think it still says something about how powerful the deck is. Oh yeah, it's absurd. It's all I've been playing in modern, uh, even since our dredge episode. 
I think it's incredibly powerful, and even the hate is beatable with a you know single green mana spell and nature's claim in a lot of ways. So uh, at SCG Philly, there were quite a few dredge decks there, and the eventual winner of that, which we'll get to shortly, but Austin Collins, uh, he had played against a dredge deck in, I believe, the second to last round, and the dredge player was in- so incredibly close from winning so many times and just didn't get there. And I feel like that was a case of just really bad luck and bad draws. Like, there was a time where he had three bloodgasts in the yard, I believe, and uh, d- needed any land trigger and just couldn't find it. Yeah, and I think there. Yeah, because that would have got back the prize amalgams, etc. So, not to say that Austin's win was unwarranted or anything like that, but Dredge was almost there so many times. Yeah, I mean, I think that that what's interesting is that I, in my mind, the move of an additional four percent of meta share within the top thirty-two, like what is it Phoenix did, yeah. it's not really that notable, right? Especially at a twenty twenty-ish percentage. I pay a little bit more attention to when prison does that, where it's kind of like, oh, that representation went up. It was a smaller share, and now it's a quite a bit more of that, those people converted. For sure. With is it Phoenix, you know, the extra four percent could be. It could be four, three or four people who managed to get lucky when they moved from the, the day two into the top 32. But Dredge is like a little bit of kind of going, oh, everybody's really annoyed with Arclight Phoenix, but guess what? Maybe this is something to keep an eye on as well. Now, of course, the day two meta share is nowhere near as, as close as Is It Phoenix was, but yeah. uh, something to keep in mind. A lot of the graveyard hate that people are bringing against Phoenix isn't usually graveyard exile. It's more targeted with surgical extraction and whatnot. I think those cards are a little less good against Dredge unless you can hit a really main target. Things like Ravenous Trap and Rest in Peace are a little better usually. Oh yeah, for sure. You can certainly. I think I remember seeing a win this weekend where uh, a player got their Narcomibas and their Bloodgasts stripped out, I believe, and they still were able to win through just the power of stupid things like Creeping Chill and Conflagrate and whatnot. So, sure. if you give them enough time, for sure. Uh, one last thing before we discuss a little bit more, the stuff that had the most noticeable decline was Spirits, which just dropped off of the, the map in the top 32. Hardened Scale, surprisingly to me at least, and even Black-Green mid-range decks lost about 2%, uh, going to about 3% of the top 32 metagame share. And then Ad Nauseam also dropped off really precipitously after people were saying that it was a pretty strong strategy going into this weekend, I believe. I would posit that's because of the representation of humans in the room and ad nauseum versus humans is massively favored for the humans player. As long as they can get a meddling mage down, that's a pretty big problem for ad nauseum. I mean, it's still only 7% of the room. But you know the ad nauseum player was paired against humans in every round. Yeah, good point. (laughs) Thank you check and mate so we'll open with scg philly so as mentioned that was won by 16 year old austin collins with is it phoenix on a just amazing performance like i said there are a lot of times where he seemed dead on board where it seemed over for him and he found his way out of it every single time second was black green rock third dredge fourth and fifth amulet titan six another is it phoenix seventh hollow one and then eighth we have tron so the first of our breakdowns here have uh Two is a Phoenix, two Titan, a Dredge, a Hollow One. So it's four, uh, four Faithless leading decks, and uh, one Ancient Stirring decks, and then a couple other things. Actually, Amulet Titan is is Ancient Stirring too. So three Ancient Stirring decks, four Faithless leading decks, and one mid range deck. Yeah, 
Rock players show start up. Beating, let's, start, let's start hitting that drum. <laughs> yeah. Boom, boom, <laughs> let's boom, move on to the next boom. one. Moving on to Europe, GB, GP Bilbao. So this one, a very similar uh, top eight or something that's smacking of familiarity. So first place, we have another Is It deck. Second place, we have Were Prison, which is pretty interesting to see putting up good results like this. Third, Dredge. Fourth, another Is It. Uh, fifth, Red Green Valakut. Sixth, Dredge. Seventh, Dredge. And then eighth, a Shadow Zoo build. Yeah, so that's out of nowhere. So, so guys, isn't Were Prison supposed to just beat Is It Phoenix by default? It apparently lost. I mean, nothing is by default. I know, magic. I know, I know. It's sort of, you know, at best it's like 60 40. I think what Shane is speaking to is that the prison deck was sort of designed to beat Phoenix. And I think what we're seeing in a lot of the is it Phoenix players isn't they're just playing Shatterstorm, which more or less destroys anything that the we're a prison player can do. Yeah, but I mean, but, but you know, we're prison can, can search up uh, welding jar and things like that. So it's not like that deck doesn't have the tools to be able to keep some of its most important hate pieces against well, something like that. Well, Shatterstorm prevents artifacts from being regenerated yeah what you also notice yes. wow, that's that's some old text i forgot about <laughs> but you also notice that this the winning deck had an echoing truth in the main and also sideboard again a hercules recall so going back in time and pulling oh, that, is it did? that choice card nice. out of the archives yeah as someone who runs chalice and bridge in blood moon seeing them rip the echoing truth and then having them go off from your prison that was then lifted off the ground is such an awful awful feeling so they were you think they, yeah. they were they teching against prison do you think? For sure. That's yeah, brilliant. I think so. Absolutely. S- same tech that uh, Storm had back in the day. It seems like Hercules recalls and generally better against prison than hardened scales. I mean, it's pretty good against normal affinity though. Hardened scales uh, it usually has a walking blister where they can ping you down, but affinity doesn't always have it. Exactly. It still makes you do it right right then. Yeah, so, exactly. You know. It's always better to force someone's hand if you can, right? Yeah. It's almost it's you know it's almost like a thing in the ice without the flipped side without the creature side so you know that's decent still it's like is, a is thing in the a, ice for artifacts yeah, I is heard that the new metric <laughs> yeah exactly so this so this top eight had uh, five five uh, faithless looting decks and only one ancient stirring deck basically and then Valakit, uh red green Valakit and shadow zoo which is a cool deck. So finally, we have GP Tampa, and the winner of that was Crusoe's Death Shadow beating a Is It Phoenix in the finals. We had Boggles versus another Phoenix deck in the semifinals, and then to round it out in the quarterfinals, we had Phoenix, Phoenix, Lantern Control, and Tron. So just to reiterate, yeah. that is four Phoenix decks in this top eight. That's a whole lot of Phoenix. It's only 50%. That's a perfectly reasonable number. <laughs> yeah, I don't even think that's Cromulent. It's not a whole. So did you guys count what the meta share of the top eights was for Is It Phoenix? Oh, no. Did no, you? I didn't do that. Do you have the number on that? I did just now. <laughs> does anyone want to give it, Does anyone wanna give, the, uh, give a shot at the, what the uh, percentage is? So it's, it's like, no counting. Give okay, it to me okay. right now. Uh, Say it. Uh, 33 39. 30. It was 33%. Okay. Thanks for ruining my bit. Oh, uh, I guessed. <clears throat> No, it's fine. Yeah, it's 33%. So eight, there were eight Phoenix decks among these three top eights. So there was one entire tournament where the, where the top eight was <laughs> was Phoenix decks. Yeah, so, I mean, um, man, I mean, these, these is it Phoenix players at Tampa Bay were really good names. I mean, I know all... They were really good I, players. I know, I know all these I names, mean, like Matt Costa, Brian DeMar, Shaheen Sarani, and Eli Cassis. They're all very good players. 
um but then they brought their game apparently but man that's still four decks at a gp looking pretty rough i mean it's it was what's interesting to me is i want to talk about um what the decks the way they built their decks like all four of the is it phoenix players in the top eight had the double snapcaster main deck over the flex over the like the flex spot instead of like terramander and you know uh other options like that or, or pyromancer ascension the, 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 sometimes like is it germ so look, do you guys want to talk about this uh sick lantern control deck piloted by sam black i mean it wasn't actually anything different besides the singleton kaya or is off or yeah, I've seen a Kaya pop up in a, a War Prison list before, and the amount of cards they get into Exile is quite a bit, and I've seen her win a game, so yeah, I, I don't kn- know if you need more than one of with no. how the deck works, but she is a powerful finisher in that deck. Yeah, I mean, within in a lock strategy like Lantern, it seems like she's just going to gain loyalty and be a legit win con when she ultimately minuses, or when she <laughs> ultimately ultimates. I think it's important to point out what some of the non-Phoenix decks that made all these top eights are, because when Phoenix consumes the entire narrative of these events, you start to lose out on the fact that Boggles, which won a GP, but basically hasn't been in Tier 1, you know, in at least a year, made top eight in Tampa. Bilbao had this Shadow Zoo build, which is, you know, very Tier 3, if not fringy. And likewise... Hollow One in SCG Philly, we haven't seen Hollow One put up a crazy results lately either. So a lot of these decks have been around for months or years and are still putting up results and they're just kind of being absorbed by the new menace in the room. I mean, here here's what I here's what I have to say, Stan. I, I think it's great that they're that these rogue decks and right now I'm calling any deck in modern that's not is it Phoenix a rogue deck <laughs> um managed to make the top eight. But um, I don't know what else we're supposed to talk about here. So, guys, guys, this this is five straight GPs where Phoenix was the most successful archetype. And that's every GP since the card was released to print <laughs> or printed and available for packs to per- be purchased. Are you serious? Oh it's Lord. all of them? Yeah, it's all of them. <laughs> as far as I could tell. I mean, and like, so it's it's absurd. It's so and Dredge is pretty far behind, and it's a, yet yet another faceless looting deck. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm as big a fan as Dredge as you're going to find right now. But woof a doof. How is it that how is it that KCI was holding this stuff down this much? It can't that can't possibly be the reason, the only reason that um, this didn't bubble up until after KCI was banned. I mean, everybody said at the time the KCI was banned that, hey, the next problem is going to be Faithless Looting. Right. I mean, like, everybody said that right away. And uh, guess what? It's certainly starting to feel that way. Well, some of us said Mox Opal and Ancient Stirrings and called for a ban on this podcast, but we don't need to name any names that call him. Well, I mean, the the top eights would show that you have your your eyes on the wrong card, buddy. <laughs> I'm not very good at magic, it seems. <laughs> oh, no. Maybe you're red, green, colorblind. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's all I can see. <laughs> I mean, it's it. Is it really like? Is it? Ha ha ha! Is it really like that? You know, if you want to fight Phoenix, you're going to be locked into a, a prison strategy that people don't really enjoy playing, or maybe a mid range strategy if you happen to you know line your answers up against the threats correctly. I mean, no one wants to be in a format where the majority of the decks are getting kind of outclassed by the tier zero, right? No, exactly, and that's that's been mentioned as an issue in the past for why they've banned cards or messed with things. We all know of, uh, or maybe not all of us, but. 
uh, when Affinity was a big thing in Standard, either you played Affinity or you played the deck that beat Affinity is really what it came down to. And I think that's sort of what you're discussing here and bringing up right now. I don't think that's where we are, though. No, not not, sure. not I'm definitely a little doomsday right now. Absolutely, I do. I do think there's more than one deck that can beat Phoenix. Yeah, there's Dredge. It's it's just not as many decks as people are used to having available to them in modern. Yeah, sure. and you know, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but we do talk about this with Ross Merriam in the interview that's coming up in the next segment after this a little bit. I will just say that one thing that he says in the interview is. I don't know why anybody would play anything other than Is It Phoenix in Modern right now. <laughs> He's not and wrong. of course, this is someone who was one of the main architects of the deck. Yeah. And so He's also a big dredge know, player lo- though, so he must have he, he loves it. He loves dredge at one point in time too. We talk about a lot of different things, but um that was pretty eye opening for me to have a player of his caliber actually just say I, I don't know why anybody would ever, would play anything else right now because you never hear people say that about well I shouldn't say you never hear people say that about modern but I feel like the consensus is never quite so um, broad about a single deck in modern it's like Splinter Twin was the last time and I know they're not the same deck don't at us that they're the same deck some people you like can to add say Stan if deck. you want to he doesn't mind so okay. but um, yeah. I hate to I hate to keep asking this question, but what do you guys think? Like, do you think that they're going to leave us in a slightly unbalanced format until like the London Mulligan comes and Modern Horizon comes, or do you think somebody's going to crack before the Mythic Championship? I mean, we still have three GPs and a SEG team event and an SEG Modern Open before the MC. So up until recently, I was of the persuasion that they are going to ban it, and then they did not clearly. But I had a, a good friend of mine, we were talking about it, and they had said that, listen, there's a new Mulligan rule coming up, there's Magic Horizons coming up. I don't think they want to mess with the format when there's two possibly earth-shattering, earth-shaking events that are going to happen. So I I would have liked something to have been done, but I do think that Wizards is going to wait a few more months and then see how these things go, and if it doesn't shake out the way they want it to, it's gone. Well, just to piggyback a little bit off of what... Zach said in terms of waiting a few more months we have a little bit of precedent that suggests wizards might wait because it took him about a year to act on kci obviously worth noting kci did not have the meta share that phoenix does but you know that deck it it took a year to get banned right like once people started talking about that it's going to get banned well, Shaheen Sarani said it would be banned two years before it was banned, but that's uh, <laughs> that's another another story for another day. Yeah, like I said, it's it's sort of a different story just because KCI wasn't fifty percent of the top eight in any tournaments. But what should our listeners do, Stan? What do you think? All right, as long as Dredge and Phoenix are around and are at the top of the meta, I think you should seriously either consider playing these decks, or if you don't want to consider playing these decks, you should seriously consider either Ensnaring Bridge or Surgical Instraction, because these are both cards that are effective against these strategies. Surgical, you know, scales in its its effectiveness against Dredge, but it is a sideboard card used in that matchup. Likewise, if you're especially worried about Dredge, as we mentioned before, I found Ravenous Trap and Anger of the Gods to be very strong in that matchup. I think those two cards like just help me win often when I'm cast against Dredge. So that's something you can consider. Um, but if, if you're playing one of these looting decks, I think you need to consider what your exit strategy is. Because it seems more and more likely that we're entering a post-looting world if Watsy decides to do something before Modern Horizons comes out. And one thing we're not mentioning is War of the Spark comes out in a month, and who knows what's in that set, too. Right. 
standard sets do feed into modern periodically as well. Yeah, so I I think Stan's advice is very prudent, and I agree. I just want to make an amendum or an addition, something we talk about a lot on this. Ensnaring Bridge is a good card, but you have to follow up with a threat immediately. If you just play Ensnaring Bridge, the Phoenix player will find an abrade, or they will find the thing to bounce it, and they will win eventually. So it is very good. I love the card. One of my favorite cards. I would highly recommend running it, but you have to land a threat immediately afterwards. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Blood Moon, right? Where it's it's a disruption, Absolutely. but you need to have a clock anyway. Yeah, otherwise it just slows them down, and you made a game longer, and then you lost it. So, I mean, ultimately, guys, as well, like we talked about just last week, it's like it's not like everyone's local game stores are overrun with Phoenix as well. So you can still bring bring any deck you like playing, and you know have a good shot because it still is modern. It still has high variance. You're still gonna go four zero some weeks, even if your deck's not the the ultimate best deck in the format. Here's what I think. What do you think, Dave? As someone who's who's much more of a fan these days, who doesn't get out to play at stores or high level events, mostly gets to do leagues. Um, I love Is It Phoenix. It's one of my favorite decks of the last couple of years. I've been on Phoenix since the very very beginning, and the card got printed. You keep saying oh, this. The and OG, I'm telling you, the Dave, OG. Nobody cares or is impressed. No, 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 but I'm just saying. Yeah, that's that's fair. But I'm just saying, I'm I'm <laughs> playing it. I'm just going to keep playing it until they take it away. That's how I feel about Dredge, yeah. You know, the thing that's really interesting about it now is that the metagame is starting to evolve where people are really worried about the mirror match, and so they're tweaking the main the main of Is It Phoenix to do all these different things, and that's where you end up with stuff like Snapcaster main, yeah. or you end up with, with uh, different threats in those auxiliary, auxiliary spots, whether it's Terramander or Pyromancer Ascension, or like I mentioned, Snapcaster mage. So there is this kind of interesting leveling and tweaking going on as the deck kind of develops with the metagame. I think that that's actually part of the problem with the deck is that it is so adaptable and so good in the hands of the of the people who can really make it make it work that they can if they're smart and they keep up with the metagame they can tweak it to to make it uh be able to compete almost in any environment going forward and um that's my real worry about the deck this weekend sort of you know the scales sort of fell from my eyes as i saw all these results come in finally where i had kind of been in denial where i'm like i i still think that fundamentally it is a fair deck okay there this is not a broken deck in the same way that kci was annoying to play against or that you know eldrazi was broken because i have ugin produced so much mana cheated so much mana into play for you when you when you had certain draws with it but it still just might be the type of deck that is just going to be kind of the big gray blob yeah. of the modern format until something goes away, something happens to make it less consistent. Yeah, uh, that's a question for you guys, I think, is can a deck be too good without being broken? Like, are we in that scenario? I think a deck can be too good without being broken, yes. Yeah, and are we in that for scenario? Sure. I mean, Deathrite Shaman was an, an ultimate value card, and everybody jammed it in every deck in Legacy. I guess that card is broken, but the decks that it were in that it was in were not necessarily doing broken things. It's just a card that was so good you couldn't avoid playing it. Sure. And so that's the kind of vibe that I think we're approaching. That question is a little hard for me to answer because I've never seen anything like this in all my years playing Modern. You know, I've never seen a deck that was fair and balanced be such a massive swath of the competitive metagame 
and can and like potentially be ban worthy with you know a 53 percent win rate give or take you know how good the data is i maybe this is a level up moment for me how is this deck fair aren't you not paying the mana cost for creatures isn't that inherently unfair but it's not the so here's how how i would just so i actually think that there is a big distinction between dredge and phoenix in the sense that dredge is an unfair deck and phoenix is not an unfair deck in my mind because it's cheating dredge is cheating way 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 more mana of spells into play i think and it's it's fundamentally changing the rules of the game i think in some ways by replacing the draw step with an effect that's super powerful yeah you know the the phoenix is driven by card selection and and cheap spells and there are some things that trigger off of cheating mana cheating cards into play via arclight phoenix but the deck can still win through different plans including crackling drake including obviously thing in the ice so there's all these cards that i think are actually just being good magic cards together in one deck that aren't really doing anything that kind of subverts the the way that the game is supposed to work yeah, Dredge, when you're playing it, definitely feels very broken. Whereas when I see as a Phoenix being played, I think I might have maybe goldfish it a few times. It definitely feels like you're just sort of filtering to the good cards in your deck. And you get the incidental value of Thing in the Ice and of getting your Arclight Phoenix back from the graveyard, which is like the cheapest thing that it does. But, you know, like when your Wrath swings for seven, it's, uh, it's it feels pretty broken. Do you guys think a deck can be too popular for modern and be punishable just because everyone wants to play it no pop popularity is self-correcting if a deck is bad enough or if a deck is not that great then it will slowly lose metagame share because people don't want to keep losing i think that wizards have banned things and interested in interest of competitive diversity and metagame diversity before so i think that there is precedent for it i think it would have to be something pretty out there and ridiculous i think people would have to be jamming kiki you know, every day nonstop, despite it not getting places for them to want to do that. So I think it would take either some sort of coordinated effort or some cultural zeitgeist moment for that to happen. But I, I do think there's precedent. It's possible, but it would take a pretty outlandish deck or outlandish move by people. Yeah, but I do think this is potentially that deck <laughs> sure. because what the that again to refer to that toby hanky article again from channel fireball and like stan kind of intimated you know the is it phoenix win rate is only just above 50 percent and so for us to see a conversion rate that goes from 21 percent to 25 percent to 33 percent at the most competitive part of the the tournament likely means one of two things to me one is uh or maybe they're related things one is everybody is playing the deck, and the deck is pretty good on its own, but it's also a deck that really, really rewards the best players for playing it well. Absolutely. And so if you, the, the, just the amount of consistency that we've seen here makes me think that it's, um, it's almost bannable just because the good players' delta of win percentage might be so much higher than, than seems like it should be fair, essentially. So, um. One thing that I've wondered about a little bit, and we actually didn't get to ask Ross about this, but I wonder if this is a metagame that pro players like better in modern, because pro players constantly complain about deck diversity in modern, and the fact that they don't have a bad, like a boogeyman to um, really plan against. 
So when we approach something that looks a little bit more like a standard metagame or a legacy metagame where there's one deck that's really dominating it, that's an environment that I think pros really feel like they can win in and exploit kind of like exploit the metagame to their own advantages. So I'd be I'm really curious to see if in a week or two, I guess that's my last like out in this whole mess that we have with this at Phoenix right now is that a bunch of pros are going to go, okay, is it is so overbalanced in the format? Here's the deck that really does beat it. And yeah. we're going to start bringing it to the table instead. And then all of a sudden we might see the meta share just drop. Mm-hmm. But it's, pr- it's a pretty big snowball right now. So I just don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah. Like Stan said, I think I've never seen anything quite like it where this much adoption of a single deck by all the people who think they're bringing the best deck there. Do you know what I mean? Like I really, would yeah. have, especially with the, the numbers and the popular opinion being that dredge has a really good matchup against it. Like, and has a really pretty good win matchup against the field. Why not just bring it? Like it's busted. I've seen plenty of strong players be playing dredge, but everyone's flocking to Phoenix. Ha <laughs> ha. All right. I think this is a good point to put a pin in our conversation because a lot of where we would go is basically where Dave and I went with Ross, where we break down a lot of what's going on with Is It Phoenix, but we also talk to Ross about the modern format in general and sort of the shape of it and his perspective on it as a professional player and tournament. Yeah. Let me just throw in here before we dive in. This is an expansive interview, y'all. There is... There is a lot of information in here. I I think that there's some statements that Ross makes that probably added a month or two to my like ability to play to play the game more and just kind of like shortcut it gave me shortcuts to some some real insights. So I think there's a it's a dense interview, but there's a lot of stuff to learn in in what he says about like Stan said, is it Phoenix itself, but also just the the way to think about modern in general. All right, stay with us. Ross Merriam, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to have you on the line and to see your little face on my computer screen. <laughs> thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a while since I've done one of these. There was a, a podcast with some guys in the Northeast that used to have me on for set reviews, uh, but they stopped running a while ago. But it, it's always fun. So, well, We really appreciate you taking the time. So thanks, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're very well. Yeah, so you had a, you had a successful year and... I think regionals proves it again. Like once you're holding, is it Phoenix in a modern tournament? You're going to be really hard component opponent to play against. I mean, I, I like to think I'm a hard opponent no matter what I'm playing. Uh, but yeah, is it Phoenix has been a particularly successful deck for me, which is great. And uh, yeah, led to a pretty good start to the year. Although uh, a bit of a, of a polarized year, I've had a lot of weekends that went very well. And then a lot of weekends that went really poorly where I, uh, you know, like fail the day to the open and then don't do that well in the classic. So I've had two, three, four of those weekends mixed in. So, you know, hoping to get a little bit more consistency in there, but I'm faithless looting dodge of the band. So I at least have a, a couple more months of, of, uh, of Arclight Phoenix for Arclight Phoenix. What's the word I'm thinking of? Um, I don't know, induced, I'll say frivolity, uh, <laughs> left in front of me. And I, I'm especially glad because this is the I'm playing the Mythic Championship in London at the end of April, and I've played two modern Pro Tours before that, and both times, uh, three weeks before the Pro Tour, the deck I had been playing for a year in modern got banned. Had you been pod. playing Splinter Twin in 2016? Yeah, it was Twin, oh, Twin and Pod before that. 
That is amazing. What terrible luck. Yeah, so I was sort of expecting the same thing to happen. And now that I'm saying it out loud, I've jinxed myself and I'll probably like emergency ban it after uh, whatever happened. Grand Prix LA, I think, is is modern. No, that already happened, didn't it? That was the recent one, yeah. Yeah, do they have another modern Grand Prix? I don't know. I think there's two more coming up this month. I forget what the locations are, but yeah, Yeah. there's there's a couple more. I've I've looked at the results of regionals and there's a lot of Phoenix in those deck lists. I think people are really starting to figure it out and, and pick it up, so... Maybe they'll just emergency ban it a week out because that seems like my luck. You know, we'll have a pre-release limited format and a, a brand new post-ban modern format with like three days and everybody will just have no idea what to do. Jeez. I'm anticipating some changes to Is It Phoenix after Modern Horizons personally. Yeah, I'm sure there will be pl- plenty of cards. And I think that's one of the reasons that they were hesitant to make any changes now is because they know there are a couple significant variables coming up. One, there's a new set in War of the Spark. Two, there's the London Mulligan rule, which should affect a lot of modern decks. And then there's Modern Horizons, which is the biggest of the three. But that's a lot of things to create some flux into the format and you know shake things up. And they want to see how that settles out before they go to the Banhammer, which has a lot of... Um, you know, ripple effects passed to the competitive community that doesn't really care about card availability and only really cares about the health of the metagame at their tournaments. So right. uh, we'll, we'll see what happens by, you know, September, October at that point, and then, then maybe they'll consider banning something. But, you know, I'm part of the group that thinks cards like Fatal Suiting, Ancient Stirrings, Mox Opal are just too powerful in general, and they're cards that tend to get better over time as the re- deck building restrictions that they impose become less and less as more cards for the decks that abuse them are printed uh that th- those enabler cards eventually have to go it's just sort of a matter of when rather than if that's interesting i was going to ask you if you felt like the deck was problematic overall and was going to get banned eventually but i think you sort of just answered that it's mostly the problem is faithless looting yeah that's the general problem um is it Phoenix is the sort of the most egregious example because for the most part, the decks that have used faithless looting beforehand are so dependent on the graveyard that you can effectively fight them on that axis and hate them there. You know, Mardu Pyromancer is probably the biggest exception there, but even then, like certain pieces of graveyard here were good against them. Very uh, much, I, especially against your Bedlam Revelers and things like that. You had to be yeah. careful. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't often bring in like Leyline of the Void and uh, Rest in Peace was probably fine, but cards like Relic and Nile Spellbomb that you know kept you up on cards and cost you a card in this attrition battle that you were fighting, while also disrupted their graveyard elements, were uh, very effective against them. So, but the, the, with, with, outside of that exception, which I think is an area where people are happy to see faithless looting in fair decks, but as far as unfair decks, you know that they're all very reliant on the graveyard, Gordo's Vengeance, Dredge. Uh, things like that. And th- so those decks can get effectively get hated by increasing your numbers of Ley Lines, Rest in Pieces, Relic Progenitus, all those cards. Is it Phoenix? It's not an unfair deck in the fact that, uh, in the sense that it is a linear deck, but it is an unfair deck in the sense that it can kill you on turn three or four pretty consistently, but it doesn't really use the graveyard outside of Faithless Looting and Arclight Phoenix, both of which have some functionality even when you're not using the using the graveyard you know, one's a four mana three two haste flyer which would, would not normally see play in modern but if they're down a card or two bringing in these graveyard hate cards then you know it'll get the job done and then exactly faithless looting still serves the purpose of looting excess lands away in the late game 
after you've cast all these cantrips, you usually flood on lands when you have so many cantrips in your deck, even when you run 18, because you, when you run 18, you're not playing a lot of expensive spells. So you just loot away those extra lands, and you've effectively generated at least some form of card advantage or card advantage relative to what your draw would have been otherwise. So it's not like these cards have that low of a floor, and that's really the problem with Isit Phoenix. Is it has such a high floor and such a low fail rate, and I don't think we've seen a deck built with Faithless Suiting in mind that really leveraged every single aspect of it. Most of the time, uh, it's really just being used as a degenerate graveyard enabler, and this uses it in that way and in the normal looting way of fixing your draws and stopping Flood. And so it's making the most out of the card and more than any other deck we've seen before in Modern. Yeah. So you you mentioned that the the floor isn't that low, and I know you've never watched me play, but whenever I try my hand at Is It Phoenix, I feel like I can't win with it for to save my life. I've been actually playing a ton of Mono Red Phoenix and seeing a lot more success with that personally. I wonder what your best practices have been since you first started piloting and innovating the deck after the birds were printed. Uh, so I I can bring up two things that I think. A lot of people don't do when they first start playing the deck that I do. One is a lot of people will hold cantrips early because they think they need them to transform Thing in the Ice or return Arclight Phoenix on turn three, whereas I will cast them aggressively. Like Even if I have one cantrip in my hand, I'll almost always cast it on turn one unless I'm returning Phoenix on turn two, like specifically the very next turn, because the deck is so dense with cantrips that you're going to find them, and you want to give yourself the most chance to be finding Manamorphoses, Faithless Suitings, and Arclight Phoenixes, and, and your in good interactive cards, depending on the matchup, uh, that you want to cast your cantrips early. And you know, That is like definitely something I've been doing wrong then because whenever i play is it I, I do typically hold it at least on turn one and then i get into it on turn two in the hopes that i draw into something broken but it's interesting to hear you say that just to increase the consistency just go ahead and fire it off on turn one an opt or yeah, a, yeah serum visions especially visions uh which has some lag baked into it because the scry comes afterwards but you know, you know if you don't have thing the ice for turn two casting your cantrip lets you do that which you want to do you know the more cantrips you cast especially thought scours and things the more chance you have of just randomly getting arclight phoenix in the graveyard or finding multiple copies so when you cast your faithless suiting you get to discard two instead of one uh so there's a lot of benefit just aggressively casting your cantrips and not wasting that tempo so i, I get it started early turn one uh, and then the other thing is in how you utilize Faithless Looting. You know, Looting is not a turn one play in this deck. I, I, when I say Cantrip, I, ex I don't mean Faithless Looting. Right. Um, that, that's sort of a, a different effect. The way, same way I differentiate Brainstorm when I talk about Cantrips and Legacy. It op faithless Looting operates very similar in this deck as to Brainstorm in Delver decks or any Brainstorm deck, really, uh, at least a non-combo one in legacy where you really want to be holding it until you know what you're going to discard or in brainstorms case, what you're going to put back on top of your library. So the more cantrips you cast before you looting, the more chance you have finding the Phoenixes that you really want to discard. And you know, if you already have two Phoenixes in your graveyard that you know, you want to, you can go ahead and cast the looting first because you know what you're going to discard. And then that informs your other sequences, you know, what, what other cantrips you play or other spells you play that turn to return them. But if you don't, you know, save that looting until the end of the chain to you've cast all your cantrips and given yourself the most possible looks at finding the first and second maybe even third copies of phoenix and you know if you find them early maybe you have two faithless suitings and you get to discard three or four and return them all that hasn't really happened to me but you know you never know it, right. it can um anything is possible 
yeah, so being being very patient with faithless, faithless looting, and that even is true outside of Arclight Phoenix draws. You know, once I've used one early, if it's sitting in the graveyard, I'll wait till I know I have at least one land to discard to it before casting it, unless I absolutely need to dig for something that turn. You know, dig for a surgical or a lightning bolt or some piece of interaction usually. But if I don't, if I have the luxury of waiting, then I will, and I'll make sure that I'm getting the most value off of discarding the worst cards possible rather than fire it off immediately, end up with three good cards in my hand, have to discard two of them. So that patience with Faithless Looting and then sort of lack of patience with Cantrips uh, are, I think, are the two big differences. And one of the reasons that, you know, the certain players are having more success with the deck than others. And uh, this was the crux of an article I wrote in, in December uh, all about Cantripping. So if anybody is interested in more finer details along those lines, they, they can check that article out. Can I can I ask you one question, Ross? You were just talking about um, you were talking about Delver for a second there and we talked a little bit about the on the our most recent episode i, I kind of feel like uh arclight phoenix is a little bit like a delver deck in modern do you do you think that's true and do you think that like it kind of feels like the the metagame is consolidating around it the same way that legacy kind of consolidated around delver at different points in time do you think that's a negative thing inherently on its own uh first i would say i completely agree that this plays out like a delver deck i know some people have compared it to splinter twin i think Del legacy delver is a much more apt comparison you know splinter twin made its mark by generating false tempo a term coined by jerry thompson uh where you would have three men up and your opponent doesn't know if they have to play around the combo or not and, right uh and they you know give up percentages tr trying to figure that out or playing wrong uh into it um or just getting punished for even making the right decision based on what you actually have. Uh, Is a Phoenix doesn't really do that. You know, what you have is mostly uh, e much easier to predict and you're mostly operating on your turn. So it doesn't generate a lot of false tempo, but it does generate a lot of, you know, actual tempo. Uh, you know, we, we look at, we think of the legacy Delver as this archetype for tempo decks and people have tried to port it in modern because there's a ton of cheap spells you can play in modern too. But the reality is those decks are necessarily, um, uh, built around the power of the disruptive elements and not necessarily the power of the threats so it's force of will days and wasteland that really make delver decks what they are and those are the cards that allow you to operate on such a low land count that you can then fit enough cantrips to make delver better um and operate on two lands because they really only play 14 lands wasteland's more of a spell and this deck does something similar you know it's 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 made for modern and not for legacy. So the threats have to be a little bit more robust in modern because there's more removal around. Um, and there's a little bit more removal around a legacy, but in a general sense, you know, you need more robust threats in modern and you can be a, a little bit slower to the board. And so thing in the ice is that really good cheap threat in that, you know, it's, it's almost virtually a two mana seven, eight, you know, it, it transforms the next turn a good portion of the time. Sometimes it takes two max three turns really, uh, barring uh, extreme circumstances or heavy disruption from your opponent. But those kinds of, uh, that's that's a good enough clock for modern. You know, the deck kills them about turn four, turn five. Uh, Phoenix can simulate those things too, but it really does generate a lot of the that same um, tempo that Delver does, but does it in a proactive way because modern doesn't have the same disruptive elements, at least on um, tempo positive disruptive elements that legacy does you know Thoughtseize for as good as it is and as cheap it is as it is is still a tempo negative play you're trading your one mana on one card for their zero mana on one card so you're right. down a mana 
Uh, and, you know, one of the ways that people have historically beaten discard decks is by flooding the board quickly. And that not only uh, is good against them by emptying your hand and making later discard that they draw dead, but it's also good because they're spending time not affecting the board. So when you spend your one mana trading for their one card, they still got to develop their board and play their noble hierarch or whatever, unless you tore open a hole uh, in their hand. And that's why that's such good advice with Thoughtseize is because it uh, negates the negative tempo of casting it if you make sure that they waste their mana on their turn by taking that card, uh, opening that slot in their curve. So you, uh, you effectively make it tempo uh, neutral or tempo positive if you blank their turn two or turn three. Uh, but if you don't, they're still just going to play whatever cards are in their hand. So like redundant decks like humans with a low curve, you thought sees them, they have two lands, two one drops, two two drops, and a three drop. They're going to curve out number of which card you take, and you spend right. your turn one doing nothing. So a lot of the disruptive elements in modern are either tempo negative, like Thoughtseize, um, or they just aren't you know powerful enough. You know the counter spells aren't, uh, haven't seen a lot of play. Though last year we did see some control, uh, but it, it didn't last for that long. So um, we don't have the things like days and force of will that let you tap out for a threat apply pressure and then still counter whatever your opponent's doing we don't have the same uh tempo positive disruption so instead of building your tempo deck around those disruptive elements we're now building in a proactive way around the threats that generate tempo themselves thing the ice bounces all of their creatures undoes a lot of the work that they've done over the course of the game arc light phoenix is a very tempo positive card you usually spend one two three mana uh, do other things with that mana, say Lightning Bolt a creature, or even Gut Shot a creature, Surgical or Graveyard, other things that, that affect the battlefield or could affect the battlefield while still generating a battlefield of your own with these 3-2 flyers with one or two of them. Uh, so that's another very like te very tempo positive play. So what we're doing, it, we're modern is a format built around, you know, very proactive, somewhat, and some maybe even lower interaction points, and we're building a Delver deck around that model rather than around the Legacy model. Uh, so it's really just a Legacy deck adapted to modern. What was the second part of your question? I, that was an incredible answer, by the way. I feel like I just leveled up like five <laughs> times listening to that. I was just thinking to myself, I don't think I've ever actually had a conversation with a player at your level before. It is so <laughs> wild to just listen and kind of learn a little bit. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, this, the second part of the question was <clears throat> just, um, you know, Delver for a long time had a similar, I feel like kind of had a similar meta share to, sure. to in legacy to what Phoenix is approaching in, in modern. And is that inherently a bad thing in your mind in modern? Uh, does that make it automatically degenerate in need of control? Uh, I actually think it's a worse thing in modern than it is in any other format because one of the major draws uh, to the format is its diversity. Uh, right. And the fact that you can, you know, like play a deck and it'll never go out of style, get, spend your time building it and getting to learn in it. So people who really identify with certain archetypes, which I think is a huge portion of the uh, Magic playing community, you know, it, whether it's Merfolk or Tron or uh, Primeval Titan decks or anything mid-range, uh, can build that style of deck and play it and have some success with it. So when modern warps around, you know, single degenerate decks, uh, things get really problematic. But that draw to modern also creates an insulation against it happening because even if uh, you know if every single person were a completely rational actor in a tournament and played the 75 that was going to give them the best opportunity to win you would probably see 
you know, 60% of the field playing is at Phoenix. And in more broken formats, you know, like 80% of the people would have been playing Eldrazi during Eldrazi winter. But that's not really right. how things shake out. Because Instead, are... it was just 70% during Eldrazi winter. <laughs> it was about 30 to 40%, which is more yeah. than we've ever seen in modern. And, and For sure. But decks in modern rarely get above, say, 15 to 20% of the format. Right now, is it Phoenix is probably about 10 uh, would be my guess. You know, it's, it's hard to tell now with the way that data is released uh, via Magic Online uh, because that the way they do it suppresses the decks that uh, occur multiple times. So, you right. know, like on MTG Goldfish, it's something like 7%, but you know it's more than that. But how much more right. is uh, hard, to, hard to gauge. And the winner's bracket is is looking like it's a lot more, too. Yeah, right? and, and that you're going to expect, too, because the deck is so good. So, you know, how, how much of that can we stand before things get banned? Uh, I don't know, but uh, it looks like we're trending in that direction. I think we're going to we're going to push that mark with Is It Phoenix. And if it gets up to 15 and 20 percent for a consistent length of time, then, yeah, I think it should be banned because we don't that's not what we want to be seeing in modern that's not what modern is about you know everybody's fine seeing huge numbers of brainstorms of wastelands and dazes in legacy because that is sort of what legacy is about and the people that want to play legacy want to play with those cards so uh, i think that's perfectly fine and then in standard you want to see some diversity but uh, standard really is more about mid-range battles than anything else you really want to see a healthy amount of those kinds of things going on so even though solta has been really popular and standard uh might not be the best deck now that mono blue has arisen and, and esper is pretty yeah. good that's a pretty good uh that's a pretty good uh metagame for standard in terms of right. how diverse it is you don't need 20 decks in standard it's, that's way too hard to do uh but we do have a, an aggressive deck and a tempo deck which is somewhat rare and then we have our control deck that's good we have a mid-range deck that's good a couple different aggro decks of varying flavors some tier two mid-range decks and rakdos and we have this weird thing hanging over everyone's head in nexus and you know the problems with nexus are are not really related to uh how powerful the deck is uh, at least for the most part, but I, I think standard is in a really healthy place, and that's where that's where standard looks healthy is when you have sort of one good um, um, representative, at least uh, of each different kind of archetype, whether it's aggro control mid range. Uh, I guess those three really big ones, but modern really wants to see multiple. Uh, examples of each of those doing well so that people can pick specific decks and really identify with them and draw into them so you need your your trons your valakets and your amulet titans all to exist and then you need your um you know your juns your abzans your golgaris all to exist even though those are all similar but like mardu pyromancer you can throw in that and that mid-range category right. as well uh and your grixis shadows you can sort of throw into that one and when decks get too powerful in modern is when they start invalidating at the very least other decks that are in their uh, category and at the worst they start invalidating everything else like we saw with eldrazi so as if we get into that first step with is it phoenix and i'm not it's hard to categorize as a phoenix because it's a little bit different than what we've seen as we saw um likening it to to legacy delver so uh, it's hard to say what category it would really be invalidating but right now i, I just can't imagine playing a different deck so for me it's invalidating everything so um interesting we'll, we'll see if everyone else gets there eventually or if you know the the other variables that are going to come into play in the next couple of months are able to uh, keep it down or keep it in check at the very least. But yeah, I, I think if we get to the, the line for oppressive, oppressive, sorry, in modern is lower than it is in standard for sure. And we're, we're going to be pushing that line with is it, I think in the next couple of months. What's a, are there any decks that you struggle against when you're playing? Is it so as I've played the deck more and more, I've come to realize that most of 
basically none of your matchups are heinous. You know, the, the deck is just so consistent and the floor is so high that you're in and and because you're proactive that you have a shot against everything. So it's sort of like, you know, the the mid-range decks, that's a, that's a common trope for mid-range decks is like your bat- matchups never get that bad. Because, you know, it's like Thoughtseize into Tarmogoyf is good against everyone. But the reality is like you have a bunch of removal in your deck against um, uh, control decks and then like a bunch of, you know, you always have like certain, half your deck is bad against one kind of thing, against aggro or against control. Um, and that's a, the classic mid-range problem. And so your what your bad matchup is is drawing the wrong half of your deck. You know, is it Phoenix doesn't doesn't have that problem because it's so proactive and has all these cantrips for consistency. Yeah. Uh, you, you rarely miss land drops. You rarely mulligan. So and your your wraths are threats. Yeah. You know, it's like you get to play wrath wrath of God, but you flip it over and it's a seven eight. So yeah, like the worst you can do is like draw lightning axe against Jeskai control or whatever, or lightning axe against right. ad nauseum. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, then it's bad. You pitch it away to a looting. That's like the worst thing that, that can happen to the deck. Your your lightning bolts and gut shots go to the face and at least deal some damage uh, when you need to race against combo decks or against control decks even. Bolt can take down a Teferi and things like that. Your removal can take down Celestial Colonnade. Um, so uh, you have very few dead cards. You have the strong proactive game plan that's good against everyone, and you have so many cantrips. You see so much of your deck all the time that the fail rate is so low. So I don't think any of the matchups are there are no matchups that are really that bad. You know, like the word decks that are coming up are scary. Grixis Shadow is scary because they just have all the right tools. So you know, a lot of the games they just have the right tools, and there's not much you can do. Like they thought sees your Drake, they fatal push your thing in the ice, and then they play a five five Death Shadow, and you don't have a Lightning Axe. Or are they basically they always thought these are lightning axe. I've never lightning axed a creature against that deck. It gets thought these every time. <laughs> I just it just never happens. It's a pipe dream. I, I, anyone who's ever done it, I, I don't know how they do it. But you know that that's a that's a deck that can be scary. Burn can be scary. You know, Eidolon is a tough card and one you need to answer very quickly. Um, um, thing weird things like ad nauseum and martyr proc can be scary. But you know, I, I, I've yeah. beaten martyr two of the three times I've played against it, um, and. I've beaten. I haven't beaten Ad Nauseum in paper. I think I've beaten it online. But like, I, the Ad Nauseum deck is sort of the exact opposite. You know, like that deck's fail rate is monstrously high. I don't know how anyone can suffer playing yeah. that deck because a third of the time, you just you lose to yourself. I win. I expect literally when I sit down and I see my opponent's Ad Nauseum, I expect to have one game handed to me. If that doesn't happen, I'm upset. I feel like I've gotten unlucky. Or they've like they've gotten extra yeah. lucky because that deck is just so inconsistent. So what the the biggest benefit that is that Phoenix has is that it's just so consistent. Uh, so you, you just never lose to yourself, and you get to punish, and you still get to punish all the stumbles from other decks. You know, like control decks tend to have low fail rates too because they're trying to play a long game anyway, um, and they have a lot of land, so they don't miss early land drops. But those decks can never punish their opponent for stumbling, or very rarely can they. Right. You know, sometimes now they can land a planeswalker or whatever, but they don't do it nearly as reliably as a deck like Is It Phoenix does. So um, the the consistency is it's really big game. So you've got a lot of like close matchups that I think you might be a slight underdog against, but you also just have a lot of matchups that are slam dunks. So. Yeah, it's been interesting to see that the kind of utility slots evolve as the metagame evolved too. as people try to do stuff against Phoenix, you know, and then, you know, Terramander came out. And that's like a new threat. So that's kind of like part of the array as well. But we, you know, we started with Monastery Swift Spear and Crackling Drake, and then it's moved to kind of other stuff. So even more, we're seeing like Snapcaster Mage. I noticed in your list yesterday that you were kind of on the Terramander Crackling Drake plan. Do you feel like that's kind of the place to be right now? I think it's close between Terramander and Snapcaster Mage as the fourth threat, I think 
Crackling Drake is pretty well accepted at this point. Although, uh, you know, I got a lot of flack for that one initially. I think people realize that what what it does for the deck and that, that what it does is a very important role. You know, I agree. My, my initial Stan didn't want to play it at first, and yeah. I, I got him to do it. I was wrong about <laughs> everything at first. <laughs> yeah. When I first saw that deck, I was like, I'm going to do it a little differently. Yeah. And then I conform. You know, I, everyone told me that when they first saw Crackling Drake, they're like, you can't play a four mana spell in modern unless it like wins the game when you untap with it. I'm like, well, Crackling Drake does do that. So, <laughs> I, so I don't know what yeah. you're talking about. It sounds like we've met the criteria. And I get to draw a yeah. card. So even if yeah. they kill it, I'm up a card. That's perfect. I'll, I'm closer to like, you know, get my three spells to re-recur my phoenixes that you've now killed. Uh, so I, right. I, I don't understand your, your reticence here. Uh, and it, it, you know, sometimes it doesn't kill them immediately, but it still does a, a huge portion of the time. And you need that kind of late yeah. game threat because they're definitely, you know, as much as people talk about modern being this super fast two ships passing the night format, there are still games that go along. So you, you need some big, powerful threat um, to, to play. And you have the mana to do it. 18 lands may look low, but you have so many cantrips that the deck plays like it It has more than that. You know, I, th- I think another mistake people have made it is thinking of the deck as a like, linearly aggressive deck. And the deck is very not linear. And you need to recognize that the deck is a capable of excelling and winning in all three phases of the game and build your deck accordingly so i think early on there were a lot of people that were just trying to build it as this combo deck i saw kiln fiend uh which is horrible yeah. and all sorts of matter of things like that and swift spear i think was the best option if you wanted to do that because it's the most stable uh and a cheap threat which is nice but that just isn't where the deck wanted to be so we moved away yeah. There was a 5-0 list yesterday that had Niv Magus Elemental in it from, from Return to Ravnica, and I was like, uh, Was okay. it playing any storm spells to go with it? That's usually the combo. Like, it had one, yeah, it had a storm spell. It had the uh, Creatures Can't Block yeah, storm, storm spell in it. Yeah, it was uh, pretty interesting, yeah. but I don't know if that's going anywhere. No, I, I, I don't think so. So yeah. we moved away from that. We moved towards more stable threats that can operate at all three levels. And there were a lot of different options, and they all sort of proved mediocre to me. I tried Young Pyromancer. I tried Pyromancer Ascension. They were fine, but they, they just weren't impressive uh, in any way, shape, or form. I tried Jace Friend's Prodigy, also not impressive. Did win me a game against an Ensnaring Bridge in, in Worcester, so that was nice. <laughs> you know, Pyromancer Ascension won me a game that no creature would have won against like a Golgari deck because they had a million removal spells in their hand, but none of them were abrupt decay or trophies. Right. So, and they, Well, they had Liliana going. That was it. Uh, in that game, and I, I ripped Ascension and went off with it through Liliana. So that they've all like had their moments where they shined, but they they didn't have that consistency. They, they, all those cards had a low floor, and that was the problem. I wanted I wanted cards with a higher floor to meet the rest of the deck. And you know, if I had seen Ryan Overture's Teamer version of the deck before Terramander was printed, I would have been all in on that because that seemed like a perfect way to introduce the level. Um, of threat density that you wanted without resorting to these mediocre cards gave you this extra spell density too which was nice you know there was a cost you have to play mishra's bauble in your deck that wants to play instants and sorceries uh but mishra's bauble is a fine card and gives you some card selection with with fetch lands and whatnot uh and you know ryan did well with the decks but post terramander i've been so impressed with the card that uh i've haven't really looked back from playing it i've got a lot of people that keep telling me the card's bad i don't really know what they're talking about uh, I think one of the issues is that people try to play it early and they're like, oh, it's a 1-1 flyer that doesn't do anything. And I almost ignore it early, don't cast it on the first few turns because a 1-1 flyer is so low impact. I just wait and eventually it's a tarm- it's a Tomb Stalker. And right. 
you know, sometimes I like play it after a sequence of things and then next turn I get to adapt it. So I have one turn where they're, they're, it's open to dying to red removal. I don't often do that against decks with red removal. Uh, so in the mirror and whatnot to try to avoid opening up that, um, vulnerability because one of the reasons i didn't like fist fear and didn't like young pyromancer is that they both died to lightning bolt when none of your other threats did and one of the reasons i liked the deck when i initially built it was that all of its threats were resilient to that card you know arclight phoenix dies to it but comes back so whatever right um so that terramander does as long as you play carefully at least it does a vast majority of the time you know i'll play it when i have three or four mana out and it costs one mana to adapt and you just adapt it once and then if they bolt it in response you can adapt in response so uh, I, I've been happy with it as a, just another big body. Sometimes it often trades with Crackling Drake in the mirror, which is fine, but not dying to things like Flame Slash and Rending Volley sometimes comes up. That's some of the cards people play to deal with Thing in the Ice and deal with a Crackling Drake. Uh, you know, it still dies to Lightning X and Dismember, but so does everything else. So now you're just taxing those cards because usually, you know, there's max two of those in any list because of the. Right the costs that are associated with them. So this is another card to tax these extra removal spells that people are playing. Uh, you know, the one time I got punished was in the top eight against Dylan Donigan last week in the regionals where he had uh, threads of disloyalty. Uh, and normally like that card, when it takes thing in the ice is almost unbeatable in the mirror. Um, and then I just gave him another, you know, outlet to, to cast it. And he took a Terramander in game three. That was really good, but I'm not going to be super concerned with that. As for Snapcaster Mage, you know, I've, I played one of my sideboard a couple months ago when I had Path to Exile to combo with that because I was really worried about Grixis Shadow at that time, mm -hmm. and it was really impressive then. I incorporated it back for regionals. Uh, it wasn't as impressive because you don't have the same variety of spells to flashback with it. I just It doesn't seem like a great main deck card to me in Is It Phoenix because the deck is so homogenous in game one. So like snap, part of why Snapcaster is so good is its versatility. And you've seen it shine mostly in reactive decks that have different kinds of removal, counter spells, and then some number of cantrips so that they can cast it proactively if they want to. And that variety is what really makes Snapcaster tick. And we don't really have that same variety because we're a proactive deck. You know, but for the most part, you're flashing back cantrips. Sometimes you're flashing back a bolt or a different removal spell if you're lucky, um, at least in game one. And so it's not doing a whole lot there. The 2-1 body isn't great. There's some synergy with Thing in the Ice, which is nice. Uh, but I really, I'm concerned more with being just more aggressive and having powerful threats, which is why I like Terramander. But after sideboarding, you do have a lot of narrow uh, spells you can target. You've got the counter spells, spell pierce to spell. You've got different removal spells. You know, that's one of the reasons I like a Rending Volley or a Flame Slash now to give yourself another removal spell as opposed to like Beacon Bolt, which plays awkwardly with Snapcaster or Threads of Disloyalty, which doesn't play at all. Or Lightning Axe, which also plays awkwardly because you have to discard when you cast it. Um, so uh, you do get some more things to target with it in the post-port games. You have a Braid, uh, which is nice in some of those matchups where that yeah. card is good. There's a lot of different things that people can play. There's there's some uh, you know the there's some variety there, but so and the games get a little bit grindier after sideboarding. So that right. so Snapcaster being a two for one matters more. So Especially like, now that people are used to playing against the deck a little bit, they're starting to try to play an attrition game against Phoenix instead, and so you bring in Snapcasters to try to help you with your specific cards and also to help you with card advantage yeah. where you might lose it otherwise. Exactly. So uh, I've liked it as a sideboard card, um, and I'm planning on still playing one this weekend in Philadelphia, but as a main deck card, it just seems kind of meh. Like, we, we haven't... Have we ever really seen Snapcaster Mage get put into a heavily proactive deck outside of when it was in standard in blue white delver i don't i don't think so 
No, I don't think so either. It just, it just doesn't fit that well. So you know, I, I'm, I don't really understand why everyone hates Terramander. I've had several people tell me it's bad, but they just call it a 1-1 flyer or they say it, it'll cost too much to adapt. And I think that might be a symptom of people not playing their cantrips aggressively enough, like I said, open the show with. You know, yeah. like if you play your cantrips more aggressively, you chain into more and more cantrips, which often happens in the deck. You know, like I scry opt to the top off my turn one serum visions all the time. That's a very common like line of play because I know I want a cantrip for next turn. But you know, if I found uh, better things, if I find my manamorphoses and my lootings and my arclight phoenixes, the most degenerate cards, and the thing in the ices, really those sixteen, then I just consistently find more copies of those early. But if I just find more cantrips, then I'll take make sure I have those so that I can at least do what my hand was set up to do in the first place. And if you do that more aggressively and you're using your mana on the early turns you know by turn four or five you're going to have five or six spells in your graveyard and your terramander is going to be really cheap to adapt so i i don't really understand i, pl- I played it all weekend and I, I, yeah. I think i paid three mana to adapt at once and otherwise it was one or two every time so why is that why why aren't other people doing this i don't get it i want to ask you about the main deck surgicals and how long you think that's going to last i mean is that is that going to be a mainstay as long as Phoenix remains in its current shape? As long as the deck does not need to play a lot of gut shots. You know, I played two last weekend and cut the Is It Charm because I thought the metagame was getting fast enough where Is It Charm was a liability at two mana. And I thought that humans would pick up a little bit. Uh, and I did play against humans twice, so lucky there. Um, nice. And Gutshot is particularly important against Thalia. You know, like humans and spirits are a lot lower than they used to be, but they're still around. Thalia is a pretty big problem uh, if you don't kill it quickly, and killing it for two mana is rough. Um, you don't really want to trade at parity with that card. So Gutshot is really important for making sure that you can still do things in a relevant time frame against uh, against Thalia. It's also just really good against a lot of different decks. I thought uh, also that Hardened Scales might pick up again because it did well in LA. I did not right. see a lot of it uh, at our regionals, so missed on that one. And Gutshot is pretty important against that deck because Inkmoth in- Nexus is the most often way you die. Um, mm. So uh, I've I've liked in- um, really really like Gutshot there. So, but as long as Gutshot isn't like super necessary, and I've seen a lot of lists get by with one, then you know you want main deck free spells, and Surgical is probably the best one because you you really want an edge in the mirror and against Dredge, they're the two most popular decks. So I, I think it'll stay around for a while. Are you biased towards leaving um, Surgical main, even in matchups that are kind of medium, with it just because it's a free spell, or do you feel like you kind of aggressively sideboard them out against decks where it's kind yeah, of yeah? Uh, so Eli Cassis in his tournament report for GP Oakland uh, had a little, little like tips and tricks section towards the end and wrote that you should never board below two Phyrexian mana spells. Um, didn't really offer any justification for it, but I've heard a lot of people repeat that, and I wholeheartedly disagree. You know, the post board games get slower. People have better removal if you're thinking the ices and better answers to your Arclight Phoenixes. So going fast isn't as important, uh, and is often like going to lead to you getting nowhere uh, if they have the answer. So I'd rather just have more impactful cards. I think people board out their cantrips mm-hmm. too often trying to leave in all these different things, and I'd rather just be uh, more situated to play that longer game and, and slightly slower. I mean, it doesn't come up that often that I'm using a Phyrexian mana spell to transform my thing on turn three or return my Arclights on turn two. Often, It's most often done with Manamorphos, uh, and if it's done with a Phyrexian spell, it's probably one that's relevant. So I haven't noticed a huge decrease in speed by bringing all those cards out, but when they're bad, yeah, I, I bring them out, especially against um, the the Golgari, Thotsi's Goyf decks, and um, 
and shadow decks that have discard spells yeah. so like leaving you with these unimpactful uh Phyrexian mana spells makes your hand even worse and have very good answers to thing in the ice and arclight phoenix so um against those you really need every single card to do a lot of heavy lifting because they're going to strip a lot of cards out of your hand um so yeah. uh, i i board them all out in those matchups i board them all out against burn i board them you know I leave in some surgicals against control. I didn't used to do that, but I think just taking their paths is really important or just blowing up their snapcasters yeah. when they go for that. Um, so that the, at least it has some utility. You know, the, the cards don't need a lot of utility in order to stay in the deck. I keep in gut shot, for example, against Amulet Titan if they have Sakura Tribe Scout. Now, Dominic Harvey never yeah. plays that card, but most of us do. Uh, and just killing Trap Scout is such a high value play, and you, you care a little bit more about speed in that matchup that I'm willing to leave in gut shot there, even though it's very narrow. But, you know, having a card that's high variance and really good when it hits, but dead a high portion of the time is perfectly fine in your Faithless Looting deck because you can pitch it away. But having a card that does absolutely nothing and is just there to be a free spell is a problem. So the the the, yeah. the bar is low for me to keep in one of those sorts of cards, but it, it is non-zero. So uh, I'm not afraid to bring them all out and play a slower game if I need to. Um, and I, I do that frequently. Can I ask you a follow-up about citing uh, out citing out cantrips? Because I do think that's something that people do all the time. And I just wanted to kind of say, I guess, here in the context of the conversation, just, you know, when you bring in a low number of specialized threats for a, for a matchup that you have, taking out your cantrips is sort of like removing the redundancy that you have for these kind of low count cards. So if you bring in two abrades against a deck that a braid is good against, you can't take your cantrips out to be able to do that because you won't draw into the abrades if you if you remove your ability to kind of get through the deck so just a just a reminder there for people as to why taking cantrips uh, post sideboard is bad or taking them out is bad be, even though they look like they're easy things to remove are there uh, are there specific cards that you think are easy to remove when it's not as obvious as surgical extraction is bad against my opponent um you know that uh, nothing jumps to mind um you know, I think the cards that you cut out easily are, are the ones that are pretty obvious, you know, a gut shot and surgical when they're bad. Um, I think people leave in lightning bolt way too often. Every cyborg guide I see leaves in lightning bolt like a lot. And I trim them, you know, basically any non-creature deck, I'm down to two, one, zero. Like I, I don't mind not having them. I cut them all in the mirror because they don't really kill anything. Um, you know, sometimes you can have one or two because it can, if you both have an awoken horror, it can break the awoken horror stalemate. Um, but I just, I'm willing, I want to have enough cards in my sideboard. I have, or I want to have enough good cards in the mirror that um, I bring them out. Cause you bring out like gutshot and bolts. So I think bolts is a, not necessarily an easy card to bring out, but one that people leave in too often, but there, there's not really an easy one because the deck is just so heavy on cantrips and you don't really want to bring them out. There's one exception I'll say on, on the cantrip side. Uh, I'll trim, I'm willing to trim cantrips against decks, um, that have taxing effects or chalice the void or eidolon you know like any mm. sort of effect like that with that punishes you for playing a lot of spells or punishes you for playing one mana spells um because you don't want your hand to clog with cantrips as often in uh those matchups because like normally you leave in the cantrips because uh as you said dave you can like cast them and just find what you need with them but against those taxing effects you know you, you can't uh or you can't do right. so as readily so i'm willing to trim against like humans and spirits most support because they have thalia or if i my opponent for whatever reason has a million damping spheres in their sideboard or they're a, a chalice the void deck yeah then i'll then i'll look at trimming some cantrips uh and make sure i have you know a higher density of you know the, the effective cards if i can you know my sideboard is built so i can do that 
uh, and then just have them in my hand more reliably. So when they play those, I don't fall behind trying to cantrip into them. So that, that is the one exception. And those are cards that make cantrips worse. So it makes sense to bring them out. But in, in the abstract right. sense, you're very yeah. right. Like you, you should avoid setting out cantrips. And that goes for basically any deck. You know, your cantrips serve as, as you know, an extra tenth of a, of a sideboard card, less than that, but, you know, some fraction of each of your sideboard cards. And when you bring that out, you make your sideboard cards worse. And what, another reason that this deck is so good is that it gets to find its high-impact sideboard cards so often. You know, I have two Blood Moons. I cast it on turn three a lot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because I dig for it really aggressively. You draw yeah. into it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, like a, you're 40% to have it, or that's a four of your 40% to have in your opening hand. So you're probably, uh, you're a little more than 20% then, because there's diminishing returns, to have a two of in your opening hand. And then you're going to see, you know, another five cards or something by turn three pretty easily, depending on player draw, maybe even more than that. You know, I'll, you're probably close to 40% to cast it on turn three if you're really digging hard for it uh, in the matchups where it's good. So, you know, the, leave your cantrips in. If your opponent's not messing with them in any way, uh, they're really good. I think it's often like a lot of it is that they can't figure out what they want to bring out. And to some extent, I think a lightning bolt has this aura around it. It's one of the best cards in modern for good reason um, that people are, are reticent to bring that that card specifically out. So sort of the opposite of your question. Like that, I guess that's the card that's hard for people to bring out, but I think should be easier. Um, but there's no card that comes out like super quickly for me. Um, it's all contextual, you know, like I'll bring out some crackling drakes if I know I get punished for tapping out. So against like combo decks, when I'm bringing in all this instant speed interaction, uh, they usually don't have a lot of removal for my threats, so I can reduce threat density pretty easily. Crackling drake is the hardest one to actually find a spot to land in. Um, and so that one can get cut if I, if I don't want to tap out. And that goes for a deck like Infect too, although against Infect is a good blocker, so there, there's some interplay there. I don't, uh, yeah. Shades there, yeah. So I don't have it. You know, I don't have a detailed cyber guide in my head right now for everything, but I, I have these general ideas right. and heuristics I use. So um, uh, there, there's no real easy card to bring out. And the deck's getting it's getting a little bit harder to sideboard now that the deck is getting so tuned. You know, the first time you build a deck and you you're it's off by five cards, and three of those five cards you know are just horrible, and you start bringing them out in every matchup it makes sideboarding really easy. So being a bad deck builder makes it easy right. to be a good sideboarder. Uh, you're like buy Monastery Swiss for games two and game three, yeah. Yeah, like I, yeah, I was bringing out Swiss Spear really aggressively, and if you go, I wrote a cyber guide back when Swiss Spear was in the deck, and you, you'll see Swiss Spear come out a lot, uh, and eventually it came out even more, and eventually it came out entirely. So one thing I'm curious about in general is how has your sense of tournament prep evolved since you've become a more competitive player, and what kind of goals you're setting for yourself these days? Uh, so tournament prep. I I spend much more time trying to figure out what I should be doing as opposed to what a generic per, trying to figure out what a generic person should be doing. You know, I think for a long time in Magic there was this pervasive idea that for every weekend there is a correct deck and every like the goal for every person should be to find that deck. You know, that 75 card list that is the exact right call for that metagame in that moment and that 75 card list will change every time even if the archetype stays the same. Um and your goal should be finding that. And I think that came from a bit of arrogance on the part of most Magic players. You know, the, that we have this idea that the the ideal Magic player is someone who can play every single deck at a, the optimal level. And the reality is that we're human and we have strengths and we have weaknesses when it comes to Magic. And we should be tailoring our preparation to those strengths and weaknesses. Like I said earlier, I'm, I'm pretty bad, uh, at least I think uh, relatively, at playing mid-range decks, 
you know, dopey uh, interactive mid-range decks. And so I tend to avoid them, even when they're really good. And you can say that over the long term, I should be putting an effort to play all these different decks and widen my range. But honestly, I don't think the I think the benefits of widening your range to that extent are overstated, and the benefits to being an absolute master at certain things are understated. Um, you know, we we've, we see people who are masters with their archetypes or certain types of decks do really well. Tom Ross, uh, a good example, even though he just top eighted regionals with a completely different type of deck. Uh, so maybe not the best right now. What did he top eight with? I missed that. Golgari midrange. Oh, he did. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is different for Tom for sure. Yes, exactly. But you know, he's made his name playing these low to the ground, aggressive decks and sort of tricky, uh, like in fact, kind of, um, kind of false tempo decks really. Um, so, and he's very, very good at leveraging those things. So when those things are good, he should be playing them almost every time. Uh, you know, I like playing tempo decks and, uh, certain proactive decks, you know, any deck that has a real set, like game plan, even if it's not particularly fast, uh, is something that, that I'm good at. And so I'll gravitate towards those decks and I don't think I'm wrong to do that. You know, but there's, there's something to be said for having a range that is too narrow. You know, if, if Tom were to only play that certain style of deck, that would be a problem. And if I were to only play, you know, just kind of tempo decks. So I played like Grixis Delver for the last four years in Legacy because I like tempo decks, you know, that, that would be a problem if I'm trying to maximize my win percentage of tournaments. But once your range is wide enough that you can avoid having your entire range invalidated based on metagame considerations, at least the vast majority of the time, you know, if you were, for whatever reason, a person that couldn't figure out how to play Eldrazi decks during Eldrazi winter, then you, know, you, you, you were out of luck. But that, those are rare instances. So we'll, right. we'll ignore those and say the vast majority of the time you'll find a deck that is uh, pretty close to the best deck, if not the best deck that is in your range, then you're fine. Then I think you're better off putting more effort into, you know, being good with those decks and you should be putting more effort into playing them, even if it's the second, third, or even fourth best deck. Yeah. Uh, so my, I've learned that over the years and my preparation has, you know, it started, it doesn't start as wide as it used to. Instead of considering every possible deck, you know, I look at the best decks. I, I, I spend less time considering tier two decks now too, but I look at the best decks, I figure out which ones that I think I'd be best at. I try those. If I like one of them a lot and I'm doing well with it, you know, I'll, I'll stick with it. And I'll go with it um, because I think being, I think we've we've come around to the idea that you know being super well prepared with your deck is really important. But I think that way of, of you know stripping down your preparation and focusing on only a few things is really good uh, and and gets around a lot of wasted time. You know, normally when preparing for a tournament, if you started from the very beginning, you would waste so much time testing all these different decks. And then by the end, when you finally settled on a deck, you'll have a day or two, or maybe you settle on the deck the night before, and you've only played, you know, 10, 15, 20 matches with it. Whereas if you had just picked that deck, or, or even a slightly worse deck a week earlier, and gotten in 200 matches with it and knew everything, you'd be in much better shape. Yeah. So, yeah, I think modern in particular kind of rewards that too, at least what you were saying earlier, as far as the diversity of decks, it's like, it's okay to pick a worse deck. Sometimes they're, if you're, if you're a master of it. Yeah, I know. And I, there are, there are times when that becomes not true. I think everybody should be playing as at Phoenix and modern right now. Maybe you can justify, <laughs> I think some people can justify playing dredge. Uh, and there's a couple other things I think you can justify, but if you're, if you're not already like a master with one of the other archetypes, I think is somewhat viable that, and you're, trying to put in work to prepare for a modern tournament i don't think there's any reason to not put in work with is it phoenix specifically can i uh can i ask you for one, one question about modern horizons for fun sure do you think they're going to print counterspell yes you do interesting yeah i also don't think counterspell is going to be like super good interesting how much i'm i'm of the opinion that it's like not that much better than logic not 
I think that's true. Actually, you're yeah. I mean, there's very very infrequently I don't have enough cards. Yeah. Yeah. Now now maybe I'm underrating the ability to now pair counterspell with other delve cards. Right. You know, in Blue Moon I played one Logic Knot and one Harvest Pyre, and I really liked Harvest Pyre as being an instant speed answer to the big threats. It was really important. You couldn't really play more delve cards than that. Um, I count Harvest Pyre as a delve card, even though right. technically it makes a ton of sense. Um, so. Uh, uh, because they cannibalize your graveyard, so maybe now that you get, to, if you got to play like four counter spells and then two harvest pyres, you know that that's a, an increase. I don't. So I, I think it's an, a, a significant increase, but it's a it's not a like fundamental shift in how these sort of decks operate. And the the problems with control have always been at a fundamental level. You know, modern is such a wide format; they're reactive. They have to cover all the bases. There's too many bases; they can't cover them all, uh, and things like that, or they can't close the game fast enough to cover the bases. And it's not like Counterspell covers any bases that Logic Knot doesn't, co- doesn't right. cover. Uh, but maybe because it doesn't use the graveyard, it allows you to play more other graveyard cards that help you cover more bases right. that make these decks better. So there's always, you know, the, most of the time when you, you hear hype or a lot of hot takes about uh, bannings, unbannings, new cards, anything like that, a lot of the biggest mistake people make is only looking at the first layer instead of the secondary second layer of effects, what's the reaction to that? And then what's the reaction to this? Um, you know, when I say it's not better than Logic Knot, that's a, a first effect. You're, you're taking this one card out of your deck and you're swapping it, which is what people are going to do. And you get a, a, some increase because the new card is better than the old card. But, you know, what does that unlock now? Like, can uh, a blue-red control deck play like two main deck Harvest Fires and that makes it good enough against Tarmogoyth and Gurmagangler that it's really good? Like, is Blue Moon great now? Uh, if Counterspell becomes makes control decks better, that helps Blue Moon too because Blue Moon's good in control mirrors, um, things like that. So there's a lot of you know Magic is this very complex ecosystem with a lot of moving parts. So sussing out you know what the next steady state is when you you poke it in, in a certain direction is really difficult to do. And a lot of the the takes you get are the things that are going to happen the first week, but nobody really knows what's going to happen in week three, week four, week five uh, once yeah. these changes come in. So I'm really excited. I think that I'm really excited for Modern Horizons. As I said, it's I think it's one of the reasons that we're not going to see bans in the next couple of months, even with a, a modern Mythic Championship coming up and the history of Wizards toying with the ban list in advance with those tournaments in order to make them more exciting. Um, and uh, you know. Uh, I have to imagine they're going to print some card that goes into Is It Phoenix? You know, how can they how I can they print so an too, entire right? modern deck without making some <laughs> blue red spell card? You know, that's what Is It is. So they'll they'll give us something. Or they're going to ban looting and reprint uh, Careful Study. Uh, sure, <laughs> which seems fine. Yeah, it w- it would be worse because you know sometimes you scour into the looting and discard cards that way, and flashing it back to not flood is good. But I think the deck would still be good. It w- that that would be a f- I'd be. Hit- perfectly fine with that compromise if it was the choice between that or having faithless suiting just banned and me not being able to play my deck then you know i'll, I'll take careful study that's fine i think i own four of them anyway i play blue green madness was my first competitive deck so i've definitely got some, i've definitely got some that i've owned some for, somewhere yeah that i've owned for 20 years but well i'm sure we'll get something but i'm sure a bunch of other decks are gonna get some things too i think containment priest is a very good light uh chance of being in the set that would be that's my take that too. would be a great addition to modern uh really good against dredge and phoenix so that'll be a tough one because that's not one like cage where like, your phoenixes will sit around and you'll blow it up eventually you know like the phoenix is not a may i'm pretty sure hope i'm right about that that would be embarrassing yeah phoenix is a must so if you play three spells with the phoenix in your yard and a priest in play Things just get exiled. It's gone. Uh, and anytime, like you have a card like that, uh, surgical is like this to an extent too. 
but it's harder to play around so you don't do it as often. But a card like Containment Priest, you will be able to play around more, so you'll try to. So you'll try to leave up that Lightning Bolt after playing three spells. That means you're probably going to wait a turn to return your Phoenixes. If your opponent doesn't have Priest, you've just given them a free turn. And that, that kind of false tempo from cards like Containment Priest is going to be a big deal. So, you know, maybe the deck gets bad because you know, a bunch of new decks become awesome. Hopefully the fair decks get a little bit better because we're in a bit of an unfair rut right now in modern, which people don't like. But every time it happens, people say this is how modern is all the time, and they're just wrong, just blatantly wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Like last 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 year we were talking about things in humans getting banned. That, that was ridiculous. I know. I couldn't believe people ever talked about banning yeah. stuff out of yeah. humans. It was like, okay, we're going to catch up to this deck eventually, yeah. or something's going to get printed that's going to make it not as good. Like, it's the fairest of fair yeah. decks. And like, so, uh, so you know, I, I think humans being a good deck has been really good for modern. Those sorts of aggressive creature decks have not been good basically ever. You know, in the early days, people played Wild Nacoddle, but modern was so new then that I'm not sold that Wild Nacoddle was actually good. You know, if we got, to, if we were playing like 20 modern opens a year back then instead of one, or two and we're playing five modern grand prix a year and a modern pro tour every year and there was so much content about it then the, the format would have evolved more quickly and i think decks like that would have been refined out of the metagame as they eventually were so like decks like that have not been good i think humans is great to have around it's, same as spirits uh it's unfortunate that i kicked them out of the metagame by building as a phoenix but sorry not sorry <laughs> uh, but it, after humans came up, then we saw like Mardu Pyromancer and Control decks ar arise and be good. More fair decks. We saw Spirits in the fall. The year before was largely about Grixis Shadow and that deck almost getting like being banned worthy. That, that deck was almost 15% of the metagame for a while. It was over 10 for sure. And so for the last two years, since the, really the banning of Grave Troll and the banning of Gitaxian Probe, Modern has been pretty fair. You know, there are still a lot of unfair decks that people like to complain about. There's still Tron, there's still Storm, there's there's still these decks, but they haven't been as dominant as they were in the year before with Dredge and Infect being uh, unbelievably good, and the format's been really healthy. I think Modern has been an objectively very good format for two years now, the last few months notwithstanding, uh, where I think there's some argument. Even a deck like, a deck like Is It Phoenix, when people talk about its degenerate draws, everybody likes to point to like the top two percent of every deck's draws as being like, too good right. and a reason to ban it you know like why don't we ban gorio's vengeance because that deck can kill you on turn one well like it that, right. but it doesn't do it very often it's really inconsistent now if you include in your argument the fact that is it phoenix is incredibly consistent which most people fail to mention then i'm much more amenable to your argument but most people they all focus on the, the nuttiness of things but like the same thing with like hollow one everyone's like man i was this fair you can put three hollow ones into play on turn one i know they do it a tenth of a percent of the time or whatever most of the time they put one in and then you just kill it uh and go on with your life but the deck is still good yeah. because it has some recursive elements too so it's a fine deck but it's not certainly not overpowered even though it can do overpowered things and uh, we have to stop conflating yeah, and then things. occasionally you run bad where you play Goblin Lore and your opponent takes all three of your hollow ones out yeah, of your hand and puts them exactly. in the graveyard. That was that's happened to me before. That's uh, that's yeah, a lot of fun. So we we have to stop conflating being too good with having the potential to do powerful things because I think modern is about having that potential to do really powerful things. That's what part of what makes the format exciting. You know, every right. every so often you see games like that. You see a deck operating on every level and doing awesome stuff or winning through a lot of hate because it's so resilient. Uh, and you see things like that. And those games are really exciting and they don't really happen as often in other formats because the linear decks don't shine as much. So those sorts of games are exciting. They're good, uh, good fun to watch and fun to play in too. I've been thinking about modern a little bit lately and just thinking that it's kind of like watching drag racing <laughs> where it's kind of like, you know, 
the tech it, to someone who hasn't played a bunch of games it's tough to tell the technical decisions that the pilot's making to win the races yeah. you know and it, some of it's the deck and some of it's the pilot but the it's really exciting because everything's really fast and powerful and sometimes you see something catastrophically fail and that's also kind of interesting yeah the parachute launch is a little too <clears throat> yeah. early yeah exactly no i think that's a great analogy actually really really good uh i'm gonna steal that that's that's going to be a problem. Perfect. That's going to be on Twitter without <laughs> citation. Um, I'm going to tell people not to watch this so I don't get found out. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, kidding there. But that is a great, not kidding about the analogy. That is great. And, you know, a lot of people like drag racing. Exactly. It's different from other racing, but it's still it's still cool yeah. and powerful. Ever, we need to start like, appreciating like each format for what it is and like learning what it is rather than like there's no single – thing that defines a, a format being good there are certain attributes that are good and we know we sort of know how to define a format that's bad but there are so many aspects of magic and if one format weighs one aspect of magic over another uh, and another format does it differently that's not inherently good or bad it's just different and yeah like people will have their own personal preferences and they'll prefer to play the formats that stress the aspects of magic that they like and that's perfectly fine you know one of the things that makes magic great is the fact that you can interact with it in so many ways even beyond playing you, know, you can make content and uh you can do a podcast and you're you can collect and trade cards and that's fun for people or you can play commander or any other format or you can just build decks you can build all your own decks you can net deck and really try to like refine it to the best of its abilities and play tournaments there's all these different ways to interact with magic uh you can read lower and get into that side of things and even within the narrow scope of competitive magic there are a bunch of ways to interact with it and you know like none of these are inherently good or bad it's all just like the things that you prefer to do and you know what i said earlier that i don't have a favorite format because i play professionally and i just play whatever the tournaments are but when i'm playing the tournaments like i'm not complaining every time a tournament is legacy or modern or standard uh unless the format is like really really bad uh which doesn't happen that often what I'm doing is saying, okay, this is the format I have to play. These are the parameters I'm given. Like, what do I need to do to succeed? And it doesn't really matter to me what the parameters are. Maybe if I sat down and thought about it, I, I could come up with certain things that I really like. And I certainly like formats where there's a deck that's very good and that I like playing. And is it Phoenix strikes both of those boxes? Um, but that that's, you know, that still doesn't tell you anything specific about the format as a whole. And Modern has plenty of good qualities. Agreed. Yeah, we made a podcast devoted to it because of how much we love it. Warts and all. There, there's there's implications to playing Magic where you're encouraged to go over the top of your opponent rather than go through your opponent. And understanding those implications and playing with them in mind is going to make you a better player and a happier player rather than just try to fight against the nature of the format. You know, if they're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole playing you know, the reactive decks or playing their proactive deck more reactively than they otherwise would that's kind of my issue with snapcaster mage honestly it's making the deck more reactive than it should be and because it's just not a great proactive card that's pretty sage advice there was one question in your list that i that i wanted to get to that i sort of skipped over because you did ask it to me and it's the goals that i set for myself when i go to a tournament because I had a, a nice prepared answer. And here's what I'll say is that when I go to tournaments now, my goal is to set a personal best for whatever that kind of tournament is. So like I've, I've won an open before I've won a couple of them. So when I go to an open, my goal is to win the tournament because I know I can, I feel like I can. When I go to, when I went to this last mythic championship, my best finish was a 10, six. My goal was to 11, five. So that uh, not only to improve on that finish, but also to, uh, to qualify for the next one 
which is another like easy line to set as a goal. And I met that goal. So I was happy, even though, you know, I, I was 11, four, I lost the last match, which ended up being for $4,500. Wow. Honestly, it, it doesn't really phase me that much that I lost that match for $4,500 because I don't play magic for money and I have enough money to live. You know, if I was starving, then sure. Uh, that, that would have been devastating, but I'm not. So, uh, I can let that wa- roll off my back where I think some players would be, uh, uh, upset by that. Um, when I go to an invitational, I, Right, I want more top eights, but I've top eighted before. Yeah, I'd I'd like to be playing for the trophy. I have a I have a semifinals finish at an invitational. I'd like to be playing. Yeah, I'd like to have that match where I can think, you know, I need this match, then I get my fun token and and I get the the a big invitational trophy because I think that I also think that's one of the places where my resume lacks on the SEG tour. I got a, a lot of open top eights and only two NV top eights. When I go to a Grand Prix, I want to win the tournament. I have a finals finish at a Grand Prix. So I know I know I can compete at, the, at this level, but if I was going to a completely new tournament, like if I go to qualify for the Players Championship, my my goal would be to top four. You know, take incremental steps. Yeah, I think that's great advice. That's something we focus on a lot: is just try to try to do better than you did the last time. Yeah, and and set realistic goals. Like no, it's very rare to see somebody go from like absolutely no resume to just winning a grand prix or whatever you know it happens it's it's great that it happens but if you go in saying like my i'm only going to be happy if i win the grand prix you know there's some there's something to be said for like not being um complacent once you make the top eight of a tournament like there's a break there you can say oh i've like made it to the top eight and sort of relax and then you get a little sloppy uh so you do have to incorporate things to not get complacent in that moment and still be playing your best uh and those are things that you have to work out for yourself it's very personal you know, like I, I listen to a lot of music to sort of regulate my emotions at those phases of the tournament. Uh, at least I try to, uh, and not get too much inside my own head because I have a tendency to do that. Uh, but you know, if at the end of the day, when I'm looking back at a tournament, I can be upset that I played poorly in certain spots. You know, I, I made a big mistake in game one of my quarterfinal match on Saturday against Dylan Donegan in the mirror. I uh, used the wrong card to transform my thing in the ice and, and got punished for it. Lost the game, probably the match because of it, and probably lost regionals because of it. Because the next two matchups were pretty good, pretty favorable. Dylan ended up winning the tournament. Now he's ahead of me in points when I would have been solidly ahead of him had I won. But you know, I can be upset about that. But uh, if at the end of the day, like I did well in the tournament and I've like m- notched up in any respect, I can be happy about that. So I'm not going to sit here and try to say everybody should have this mindset that, like I'm going to win the tournament every single time and be completely upset when you don't because that's not a good way to like that's a good way to get discouraged over time because in magic there's a lot of losing so every time you make a positive step forward that to me is, is something to celebrate is there anything you want to um that you want to plug before we wrap this up for good um well if people want to get at me the best way is twitter i am at ross hunnids which is a very old magic meme at this point um it, it, it's r-o-s-s-h-u-n-n-e-d-s so if you're not following me on there you can hit me up on there i answer probably 90 percent of the questions people ask me on twitter you know sometimes i'm busy and i don't get to it so you know you can ask me a second time i'm never going to be really bothered by it that's uh i tend to keep my facebook more private so if you ask me questions there i'm less likely to get back to you but i still do um i'm very i'm basically zero percent to accept friend requests because i keep facebook more private i've got like a thousand people in limbo right now (laughs) um but on twitter uh i will i will answer most anything you want 
I would I do prefer when people ask me sort of pointed questions rather than what are your thoughts on card X or matchup X. You know, if you have a specific question um, about how to play uh, a matchup or when to bring in a certain card or how to uh, play with a certain card, you know, like when I say you know, don't run out your Terramander early because you don't want it to die to red removal, uh, because those questions are easier for me to answer. You know, when you ask a, a, a general question, uh, I can approach. I can think of you know four, five, six different ways to approach it, and then I could write you a, an entire book about it because the question is it covers a lot of ground, and I don't want to set reply with people with these huge paragraphs, especially on Twitter. But I can't stop myself, as you probably know <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast. I, I literally can't. So. Uh, if you ask me a general question, you're likely to get a, a very long answer or a vague and much less helpful answer, which I also would like to avoid. So, you know, just a suggestion to all of you is to ask pointed questions, which is a topic of an article I wrote about five years ago <laughs> uh, or no, four years ago. Um, so, but, but yeah, get at me on Twitter, ask me things. I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to get back to you, even if it takes me, you know, two or three days of I'm traveling and writing and, and doing versus live and stuff. Uh, so versus live, uh, we do. I and Todd Anderson do uh, one to four p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and if you're somewhere not in the U.S. and you don't know Eastern time, that's uh, UTC minus five, I think, or GMT minus five. Um, that might change with daylight savings. It might be minus four during daylight savings time. Uh, but you can look that up. But Eastern time, one to four p.m. Uh, we, you know, every week we figure out something that we think is topical. Uh, this week we're going to be doing uh, the London Mulligan rule. Oh, uh, I don't one. know when this is going up, but as of the, uh, and we, we do like last week we did Modern Horizons cards that Todd and I kind of wanted to play around with. We played some fun decks. You know, a lot of time we do preparation for tournaments, whatever's going on, whatever that format is. New decks will run through a gauntlet and see how good they are. Like I'm going to be. I'm going to talk to Todd. I want to do a, a War Prison Gauntlet because that's not a deck that we've explored at all. So uh, that'll be interesting. So if you're looking to prepare for com upcoming you know, uh, Opens and Grand Prix, we're a very good resource. You can get in live in the chat and ask questions, and we answer a lot of them. Uh, and, and we also have a good time. we got our marbles that we constantly battle over, and you know, Todd and I both like to trash talk a little bit, so we get it at each other. So it's a really fun time. We've had a lot of positive response to it since we started doing it live last August. Um, and I've had a lot of fun with it as well. So please tune into that if you're able to. Um, I know a lot of people work during that time, but uh, if you've got some free time in the afternoons on Tuesdays and Thursdays, that's at twitch.tv slash SCG tour, you know, the same Twitch channel where they broadcast opens. We do versus live during the week. Uh, VODs get replayed, I think, at 6 p.m. those days. So if you want to do it after work, you know, we go we go off at 4. They go back up at 6, I think. And the videos get posted to our website three days later and onto YouTube. So you can find them belatedly there. Uh, the Tuesday video that we do live goes up on Friday. The Thursday video goes up on the following Monday. So everything you need to know there about Versus Live, please tune into that because it's awesome. My articles typically go up on Tuesday on the premium side of StarCityGames.com at 11 a.m. So you can read those as well. As uh, I think that's everything I need to plug. Awesome. Well, and we'll, uh, we'll post links to all of this stuff uh, in our awesome. show notes and wherever we promote the episode. For the last like four years, whenever anybody asked me, you should start or told told me I should start streaming or asked me if I would. I said, yeah, I'll probably get around to that. But I had no intention at all of doing it. <laughs> now I actually do. I promise you. So that will probably happen. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, then you'll get to know when it happens and where to find me uh, for that. So if you're if that's something that also interests you, that will eventually happen. Looking forward I to can't. it. Yeah. All right, man. Good luck in Philly. 
good luck Thank you very much. in 2019 and in life in general you <laughs> yeah. were a real pleasure and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing you in person again whenever that happens absolutely yeah i'm looking forward to it myself uh please don't hesitate to come up and say hi to me at events that goes to people at home too you know if you want me to sign anything uh as long as it's not uh sign as long my as baby <laughs> yeah as, as long as it's tasteful i will sign basically anything you want and say hi take a picture you know don't don't hesitate uh the only time that i tell people that it's inappropriate to do that is if you're we're in the bathroom so if i'm at the urinal please don't don't talk to me um nobody's Fair. done that to me that's not out of experience but uh i you know i get asked that question is there a time when you don't want that to happen and, and that's the only one i could come up with uh, <laughs> even if i've just come off of like a, a bad match uh, or I'm walking somewhere. It, it does not take much time to go through these interactions, and the fans are the reason that I get to do what I do. So, you know, I have a responsibility to give back to them and let them have their uh, a great tournament experience when they attend these opens because they definitely don't get to go to as many as I do. So, I, I like SCG, want to make them as, as good as possible. And that is even, you know, outside of the fact that the things that are good for SCG benefit me because I nominally work for them. So, please do not hesitate to come up to me. Uh, I'm always very happy uh, to uh, to sign things. Remember, I, I was once, you know, like a nameless face in the crowd that showed up to their first Pro Tour and saw, or their first Grand Prix and saw Kai Buddha playing uh, Affinity and Mirrored and Block Constructed and was awestruck by the fact that he had drawn all four of his disciples in the mirror because he's so lucky. Uh, <laughs> that's a true story that that happened. Um, or watched Gabe Nassif take about seven minutes to resolve a tooth and nail. I, I we were at Grand Prix New Jersey in this huge uh, event hall, long like big flat uh, event hall. I walked up and I just leaned over behind him and was watching him play. And he's resolving tooth and nail, and he's thinking about it. He's got like five cards in front of his deck, thinking about which two he wants. And I'm like, he's taking too long. I walked away. I walked around the entire event hall back to Nassif's match, and he's still resolving the tooth and nail. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, as someone who took five minutes on camera to resolve a brainstorm once, I probably don't have a, a place to criticize, but that was a fun thing to watch in my, my first Grand Prix. So I'm more than happy to give back to anyone that wants me to, you know, sign or chat or, uh, um, you know, deck advice, anything, anything you want. I'm more than happy to give the time if I have it. So don't hesitate to come up to me. If you are at Opens uh, listening here at home, and obviously you too as, uh, as well, the the lovely hosts here that have had me on. Awesome. You're a gentleman and a scholar, Ross. Yeah. And we appreciate you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you can say the same. So since it sounds like everybody is pretty much agreed that faithless looting is going to get banned. Yeah. You know, I could see this. I could see this. Ban Creeping Chill. Ban Manamorphose. Is that the, that's the new, seems to be the new hot thing on Twitter this week. That's because we we're, so, about we're, that we're, for a we're so desperate to not lose faithless looting. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like my move better? My move uh, is to ban faithless looting and replace it with careful study. No, I don't want to stretch my mana base. Well, don't, you're don't being make pretty me. selfish. It's a much more fair <laughs> card than faith than faithless looting is. Yeah, I agree. Well, I mean, I think what's more interesting, what what we could perhaps do, is we could combine this thought process with a cool question we got from a newer Twitter follower, um, Seung Su. Forgive me if I am pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, his question was for the wind down. I'd love to hear about decks you all have been eyeballing and look fun to play, but you haven't yet played. And so I think we all have some interesting thoughts here and some stuff that also might be when we lose Faithless Looting, got to play other stuff. 
So a deck I think is particularly well positioned right now in the meta is Murder Proc, and that is a mono white life gain deck that uses the card Sarah Ascendant, which is a one mana one one lifelink. And as long as you have thirty or more life, it gets plus five plus five and has flying. I'll so take that. when you have thirty or more life, it is a six six flying lifelink for one mana. And it, yeah, it uses like Martyr of Sands to gain the life and stuff like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the, also the card Ranger of Eos to start tutoring out stuff too. So I think that this deck is particularly well positioned because it runs a lot of removal in a form of Wrath and Path, Path Exile. But I think that Sarah Ascendant is good right now because a 6-6 Flying Lifelink is very good against Dredge. Because at best what they're doing is blocking with a Narcomoeba or otherwise you're crashing in and gaining 6 and that is very good. And even against Phoenix, they have to have 2 to block profitably. And with all the removal in this deck, it feels like you're going to be getting the Sarah Ascendant quite a bit. Yeah, I bet you this deck is really annoying to play against by a number of popular decks, and people just think people just think it's cheesy. It sure is. I've I've definitely played against this a bunch of times with Mono Red Phoenix, and not an easy matchup when they'd gain uh, twelve life suddenly from a Martyr Sands. Yeah, and and how do you remove like a Sarah Ascendant even at six? Like, I mean, if you if you're if you're playing Dredge, you have to have a you know. A six a six card conflagrate. If you can't lightning axe it, you can't dismember it. You have to have what? You have to have like a fatal push, right? You need double bolt as well. Yeah, you're basically three for one in yourself if you're counting on lightning axe to get rid of a Sarah. Yeah, I mean, you you mostly just want to be in a deck where you can bolt, you can do damage to face to try to just keep them below thirty yeah. and hope that you kind of grind them out on cards and then. Uh, see where it goes but i do think this is or a play fatal i push. do think this is a real deck yeah fatal push helps too if you're in a mid-rangey kind of yeah but who's playing sure. fatal push anymore very low percentage of the uh, meta game grixis death shadow it's like and death shadow rock. and rock that's basically the rock it. well that's together a- that was seven and a half percent of the day two metagame across all the sure. events this sure, so, sure, just sure. a little warden talk for you the rock is what we called alcatraz <laughs> <laughs> thank you everybody I'll go next. I mentioned this on the podcast, I think, in some earlier episodes, but I've been chipping away at Grix's Death Shadow for a few months, and I'm about halfway there. I have um, pretty much all of the lands now, working on getting some Lilianas, some Death Shadows, but I've always wanted to play a Thoughtseize deck in particular, and I really like this deck style of threats plus disruption with lots of interaction to draw out games, protect your queens. Um, it also helps that Grixis are basically my favorite colors to play in Magic. I don't get to do a lot of black and modern, but uh, as you guys know, I love red-blue. I think blue-black, red-black are also cool color combos. So this is kind of like uh, one of those decks that I had my eye on pretty much as soon as I started modern years ago. And at that point, it was a very different deck. And seeing it kind of come back in this new shell and strategy has reinforced my desires to sort of join the Thoughtseize party. Yeah, and if you want to level up playing Modern, I think playing Grixis Death Shadow will get you there because you have to think an awful lot about what you're doing and what your opponent's doing. Yeah, the one of the other reasons why I'm putting together this uh, this deck now is because I think it could get better if the London Mulligan is adopted widely. Um, any Thoughtseize deck seems pretty good against opponents who are mulliganing aggressively for silver bullets or specific cards. 
Yeah, I didn't. I hadn't thought of this before. I I saw this in your notes about what you were going to say about Grixis Death Shadow. It's a pretty interesting counterpoint to yeah. everybody yeah. saying saying, "Oh, it's going to make combo decks totally broken." Oh, it's going to make decks that are really digging for uh, a certain card really broken. To say, "Hey, decks that have count that have a uh, discard also become better in that situation." Is uh, it's an interesting point. I think it's really really uh, plausible. For sure, I agree. Well, this is me really executing Ross's advice to look at the level two when changes occur, I mean, right? Everyone's talking about Adnaz and Storm, but I'm over here casting Thoughtseize. Yeah. And you're like, I'm playing all eight. I'm playing four Inquisitions and four Thoughtseizes. I just, I want to make sure I always have two of them. <laughs> wrench mind, dog. Um, <laughs> the ones running wrench mind, are they? <laughs> <laughs> the rack, I think. Isn't the rack? Yeah, eight rack. <laughs> <laughs> Raven's crime. Do it. Raven's crime. Do it. Commit a Raven's crime. I command you. (laughs) More birds. Damn it. So I'm going to keep this solely in the realm of decks I don't own and haven't played yet. So in terms of competitive decks, I think that's like two, um, maybe three. So I'd, I'd honestly love to pick up humans. And I have wanted to play humans for a while. It's not a really exciting pick. For sure. Um, it's, but it's just always seemed super powerful, really tunable. Beating down with creatures is fun. And I've been playing you know, spirits instead of humans for a little while. Um, and, you know, it's fun. It's good. But I think that humans has the ability to fight a little bit more flexibly against the, the format with some of the humans you can slot in. Like you can see how much metagame humans has re- you know, picked up just by playing some Anafenza the Foremost in the past few weeks, and she's doing work for humans. I think it's also a little bit more proactive than reactive, and if you haven't picked up from me yet, I don't really like playing reactive decks. I like sort of asking the questions uh, or even playing like a Thoughtseize or an Inquisition, and you know, being able to do that with a Kitesail Freebooter seems kind of fun as well. So that's kind of where I'm at. I think that... I don't think I'm going to put the money into humans, but it's definitely a deck I'd love to borrow the cards for or rent off uh, manatraders.com. Our favorite site, manatraders.com. .com. I'm calling it right now. Within a year, Shane is going to put the money down on humans. He's probably going to sell all the Snapcasters he's been buying and selling. Arbitrage, my friend. Arbitrage. Dave, what are you eyeballing? So, I think I'm going to go a little more rogue here i'm gonna yes. go the, i'm gonna walk the path of zach <laughs> and i am gonna say i would i would uh i've already played this deck one time and i definitely want to play it again and that is Saltai reclamation teachings mm. um it just feels like there's something there to me and i'm gonna try to see where i can go with that kind of super powerful mana engine i think that i you know i've only managed to do one league with it so far I think that I was playing it kind of wrong in the sense that I wasn't going all in enough on trying to bring up Nexus of Fate early enough in the game where I could just keep casting Nexus of Fate over and over and over again. So um, I'm going to try it again with that kind of uh, thought process in mind and see where it goes. But it just feels like Wilderness Reclamation is actually a broken card, especially when paired with Cryptic Command as it's kind of buddy, buddy number one. And so figuring out the shell from there seems like uh, there's a lot of ground to till. And so I'm probably going to go against my natural instincts and play some reactive decks for a little bit. Also thinking about, honestly, playing some blue-white control. But that's... uh, I'll just kind of keep that secret for a while. (laughs) Yeah, don't tell your wife. (laughs) 
Honey, I only need w- five hours for this league. <laughs> what about son? That's a real problem. That, you're right. You would double up your league time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it takes forever. Dave, I've I've also done a league with uh, Sultai Reclamation, and I'm glad that you're picking up the torch because I was not impressed. <laughs> Specifically, I reacted very negatively to Growth Spiral, which is this weird card that I think the deck absolutely needs, but is just probably not modern playable yeah i i think that's a pretty good card <laughs> actually uh what yeah, i do you were on my you were on my train no. i thought we were we were texting in all hours of the night about how bad growth spiral I, well was. i think that it's bad if you think you have to play a land with it all the time sometimes you're just cycling it for a card and sometimes that's okay um but this is a deck that like you really do want 10 lands in play, and yeah. so you can, you can go for it that way, and it's kind of, like, good anytime you play it. But um, at any rate, I think there's some ground to, to explore there, and I'm just going to keep spiraling. I think it might get better if Counterspell enters the format, because if Counterspell is in Modern, I'm pretty curious about any deck that's running for Remand as well as for Counterspell. So, so you're telling me that you want me to play a deck with four... Cryptic command for remand and for counter spells. I am in. I am in. I am in, sir. I am in. All right. Last question I want to pose to my co-hosts. All of us, but Zach are playing faithless looting decks right now. I wonder if faithless looting is banned. Are either of you going to try to adapt? Personally, I think Dredge has more chance to survive than than Phoenix, at least right now. I feel like if they ban Faithless Looting, there's a good chance that they might have a replacement in mind But I, it for in Modern Horizons. But on the other hand, Modern Horizons is already printed, so it would be pretty hard for them to um, fix that right now. So um, I don't know. I think Phoenix will have a place, but honestly, I feel like it might be back in Hollow Phoenix where you can play Burning Inquiry and Goblin Lore and stuff like that again as opposed to having the control over it that you had in... Um, you know, the blue red version of the deck. Yeah. You don't think replacing four faithless looting with four is a charm is, is enough. You think is a charm is substantially it's, worse. It's crazily the, worse. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a lot worse. It's like otherworldly worse. It's in nowhere, even in the same conversation as the card, in my opinion. Oh. So I think careful, like even careful study which I've talked about a couple of times on this podcast now is like my sort of hobby horse as a card that I would love to see get introduced. If faithless gets banned is a way, way, way better card than is it charm yeah. just because it's one mana. Yeah. yeah Even though it's a sorcery one mana, one color. Exactly. So. I mean, for, for dredge, I don't really know what it would try to do instead. I mean, the options seem like things like burning inquiry, because you already have cathartic as your two CMC spell and burning inquiry at least does something similar. Um, people have also mentioned like stitcher's supplier as well, but you don't really have a sack outlet to get the other three cards when you need them. Like when citrus supplier leaves the battlefield. I mean, I what think about neonate, well, that's what I'm thinking. So, so with, yeah. with, with the London Mulligan, I'm curious if Let's say let's say looting is gone, but neonate and like uh, crippling chiller is still around, right? So I'm thinking maybe with the London Mulligan, 
because that can increase the odds of getting a neonate and a dredger in your opening hand, and that gets your engine going immediately when you when you toss the card and sacrifice neonate and then draw off the dredge immediately. And yeah. that that could be where things could be headed, at least for testing purposes. I don't know if it maintains anywhere near its power level, but I mean it probably could use a little correction and still be fun to play. So, I don't know, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I'll, 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 I'll take a shot at it. I really am enjoying playing the strategy. I just hope that it doesn't get completely, you know, nerfed to the ground. Zach, I don't want you to feel excluded. Do you have any thoughts on life post-Faithless? I have recently switched over to Mono Red Prison from Scred due to the prevalence of Phoenix in the meta. So I wonder, with a banning of Faithless looting, if I would not be able to return to my snowy homeland. We want you to be there. We want to. We want to live there with you, Zach. Thank you. It's chilly. Or... Stan, what about you? To be honest, I'm actually less concerned about the life of blue red. I think blue red spells decks will always exist in some shape or form. Um, maybe it'll go back to blue moon. I think Phoenix might still have a home in some kind of blue red deck. For me, the worst part of all of it is I won't be able to play the mono red Phoenix deck, which I have just been putting up really good numbers with. It's probably the most successful I've ever been with a single deck in modern. So it'll be bittersweet. I've never played a deck that's been banned. So I I guess that's kind of a coming of age moment for every young magic player trying to be an old. It's a midlife mitzvah, if you will. I I really think that Phoenix will will find a home. Again, if if they ban Faithless Looting, I mean, there are people who are just calling for Phoenix to be banned, too, right now, and I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think they'd rather ban the, ena- the enablers that are kind of going to be po- problematic no matter yeah, what happens legal, right? with the metagame. I mean, Grapeshot is, yeah, Grapeshot's legal, but I think Faithless Looting is going to be in broken decks forever, like, as long as it's around. And so we might just be at the point where we just can't handle it anymore because there's too many good payoffs. Um, I do wonder a little bit if this kind of B-side scenario of Manamorphose and Crippling Chill being banned is actually going to happen. Um, instead, I have no idea, but I, I, I don't know if you guys remember, but a number of episodes ago, we talked about the possibility of Manamorphose being on the block yeah. because it's just a dumb, broken, free spell card. And, um, that kind of fits the profile for me as well so i'll be curious to see what happens so that wraps up this week's episode of the dive down if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out and if you use itunes please leave us a rating and review if you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain in something in modern tweet us at the dive down all one word or email the dive down at gmail.com If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. We typically have fun conversations on our thread every week, and sometimes we post midweek analysis during tournaments and other big news events. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. Until next week, get out there and bolt a
Yeah, so um, I'll take this initial part, y'all, because um, so the first thing we did was as soon as we had the date. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, let's stop. <clears throat> I think you should set up why we're talking about these events. Oh, come on. <laughs> and kind of do a, do a little bit of like, hey, this was a huge weekend. Hey, Dave, you know, you know what would be awesome, Dave? You know what would be awesome, Dave? Is, wow. if, is if you typed it in the notes. <laughs> a little I, I can't teach... I can't teach you to be a human. Oh, but yeah. <laughs> Brutal. 